everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Amateur All Tours. You can follow us on Twitter at All Tours Pod, or you could email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. So, everybody, we have the the weekend of it, as uh, as I've been hearing this has been proclaimed by a fellow podcaster who is actually joining me on the show. Uh, I am very pleased to welcome back good friend of the show, Jay Skipworth from Filmstrip Podcast. We're going to be talking about It Chapter 2 today. So, first off, Jay, how you doing? It's been a little while since we've uh, we've done an episode together. Yeah, Mike, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me back on here at Amateur Tours, and real excited here to talk about it with you. And then, uh, you know, excited again to let people know you'll be coming on Filmstrip in November with me. So, real excited to to be here to chat about this movie, though. Yeah, and so, and and one more thing that I want to say right before. So, you were on the show, I think. I think it was a few months ago at this point. The the whole the last few months have been just a whirlwind with with the life going on, but. On that point, so we had you on to talk about uh, you as a podcaster and as a content creator, and then we did an episode of What Am I Missing? Yeah. And in that first part, I, I mentioned to you how instrumental Filmstrip was to this the creation of this podcast and Brian and I as podcasters. And, and I think I mentioned it that episode, and this kind of makes this episode for me very another very special one because things are coming full circle. So a few years ago, you had done the, the It miniseries on yeah. your on Filmstrip, and that is the first few episodes, and that's how I found you guys, was through the It miniseries. And now I just feel like we're coming full circle now that we're talking about the conclusion of this It, I guess, franchise, at least in the, the immediate future. And I don't really see this, uh, us coming back to Derry anytime soon. But I just think it's really cool that, you know, here we are, like however many years later that I that I listened to your show, and I think it's just really surreal and awesome to be talking about it with you. I I still am totally flattered by that, and, and glad you found us that way. That uh, selective works of Stephen King is what we called that limited series. Nick and I took ten Stephen King adaptations, and we did like five one set of you know, weeks and then we took a break for a couple months and then came back and did another five later on and it was definitely one we were going to talk about as a part of that and so that's been one of our more popular series and it still remains popular to this day and then when the the 2017 version came out we were in between things and recording a lot of stuff and so we didn't see it in theaters but we ended up recording it for the beginning of 2018 before we went on hiatus and that remained a, a I don't want to say contentious episode but it's one where I don't know that we've ever disagreed more about a movie I was very lukewarm about that movie and Nick really liked it and so I wasn't totally jazzed to come back to this but I knew this was going to be an event film because at that point the box office on it chapter one had been so massive and honestly the casting really suckered me in and I was like I have to see what they do with this can they fix everything that I thought was maybe you know not working in the first part so it's cool to, to, that, that that is your entry point into film strip though because that's one of my you know most favorite uh, things that we've ever done on film strip that series because it was a way to tackle a lot of stuff without having to do everything because if you try to do every Stephen King adaptation I mean you could podcast for five years and just <laughs> do those movies and I, you know at some point I think you, your eyes would bleed because most of them are horrible uh, so it's neat to to pick the ones that are you know maybe more interesting to talk about and I mean let's face it dude Stephen King is hot right now like he is coming back in a major way and I think part of that is because of stuff like Stranger Things which is so heavily influenced by him uh, you know, you can tell the Duffer Brothers really, you know, 
dug him and then his properties are getting remade. So it's, it's neat to, to revisit King from time to time. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing with King, so I want to, so this is another iteration of, I guess the inadvertent new series that I have like a conversation about where I have a, a, it's whatever is topical. Like I typically review it with Brian and then I want to have someone else come on and we'll just add to that conversation. So to make this, just to add more to the conversation, I want to start with just kind of the history of it with you, and that yeah. we can start that with Stephen King, the book, the miniseries, and then we'll get a little bit into part one a little bit later. But what is this history with you? Because it is very special to me, especially as getting into adult literature, adult content in uh, in media, in media, and and just adult works of fiction. This was like that first book that kind of really pushed me over the edge. And I read this at an age, well, I use the word uh, read <laughs> loosely because I read this at an age that I did not understand. Pr- like the book is, I don't know, anywhere from 11 to 1300 pages long, depending on the print that you that you get, how big it is, how small it is. So it's, it's a long book and there's lots of adult messages, lots of very, uh, lots of overt and and subvert uh, sexual tones, violence, language. There's a lot going on in the book. And I think I was around like 10 years old when I tried reading it, and I did not understand it, did not appreciate it. But it was that first foray into adult literature that really propelled me into start exploring adult film, adult uh, content, films, uh, music, comic books, things like that. So this is like really instrumental in my growth of, you know, becoming a, a film lover. Yeah, man, I have a long relationship with the property known as Stephen King's It. And it starts with, I am the son of a voracious reader. My father uh, has read so much stuff and can read long volumes and an incredible pace. And even growing up uh, with working all the time and doing all the stuff he was doing with me and my brother and my mom and everything, my dad was always reading something. And he liked Stephen King. Uh, stuff and he really liked it when they would make Stephen King movies. I've talked about on my show before, and I think I talked about it last time I was with you. The Shining is a big one for me and him, and like I grew up watching that with him at a young age, and that was really kind of my first introduction into Stephen King was The Shining. And I remember reading that really when I was way too young to totally get it, and I revisited it again as a young adult and have read it you know a few times since and appreciated it a lot more. But I really appreciated Stephen King's storytelling. And I always knew I wanted to read this book. And I saw, I remember the first cover of this book and just seeing this sewer grate with this little paper boat flowing down and this like three tentacled claw thing coming up out of the grate and going, what is that? You know, and not understanding the idea of it. You know, what, what does that mean? Being too young to really get it. My dad read that book and then he found out they were making a miniseries about it. And we saw the advertisements on TV. So that was like appointment television that Sunday. You know, we came home and watched that. I think we even you know taped it off of VHS at that point with our VCR. And I revisited that thing so many times as a kid. And the miniseries was my understanding of what that was about uh, for a long time. Uh, up until I was, I guess I was a senior in high school and I finally got a hold of the book and I started reading it and I got busy doing senior year of high school things and I just kind of put it down and I didn't come back to it until I guess between my freshman and sophomore years I ended up really digging in and reading the thing again and I was able to consume it and get it mostly and I remember thinking if I can finish this 
it will be an accomplishment. Cause at that point, I think like 500 pages may have been the longest book I had read in my life, you know, by the time I was 19. So when I got through the thing and I read it, I remember being just kind of blown away by the structure of it and the way that it was telling a story in the 1950s and a story in the 1980s simultaneously. And sometimes the actions were, you know, just repeating themselves and that whole idea of history repeating itself. And, you know, spoiler alert heavy here, because we're, I guess we're going to spoil everything about it. You know, the book unfolds very differently than miniseries does. And it unfolds a good bit differently than the way these two movies have too. And for the record, I am always fine with that when we adapt from one medium to the next. I think that's just part of good art. Uh, but I, I always remember the book and remember the big climax of it. And then always thinking that the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages of it just seemed to just sort of go on forever. And I remember reading about this street flooding and that street flooding and this and that, and just trying to get the geography. And the thing I always took away from it was how Stephen King built a town with words in front of me and how I could picture what it looked like having never seen it, having only seen what was on that TV miniseries and sort of putting that out of my mind and just experiencing the book for what it was. It was a different experience. And then I, I mean, I walked away from it for years. I don't think I went back to that. I got, I read the stand. I read like pet cemetery misery, you know, a ton of his other books um, and, and watched the films and stuff. But it was one I just sort of said, you know, eventually I'm going to come back to that book. And then I guess I was finishing up graduate school and I, for whatever reason, got into a mood of wanting to read it again. And so I went back and read it again. I watched that miniseries and it was probably the first time I realized like, man, this miniseries really was made on the cheap. Like they really had no money to do anything uh, that was interesting in this, but I still felt like a lot of the performances got the essence of what that story was about. And I then wondered to myself, and we're talking about the late 1990s here, like, man, I wonder if they would ever actually make this as a, you know, a bonafide film. And that was when the internet was starting to, come into you know, being the way it is now and a place for information and particularly film information. And there were talks of like, Oh yeah, they're going to remake it. And it's going to be one big movie or it's going to be a, you know, another mini series, but they're going to do it on cable so they can get away with more and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it has always been in, in my world. And I, I, you know, I own the audio book. I've listened to it a couple of times on like long road trips and stuff like that uh, because it, I mean, it's hours and hours of content. <laughs> and so I'm, I've read it and I, my ears have read it a couple of times too. So I feel like I know the book really well and, and again, I've, I've watched that miniseries so many times. I wore the VHS out that we had of it. And I even bought the DVD several years ago and I have it still here today and we'll watch it. And, uh, you know, I watched it again, you know, not that long ago because I knew, you know, the new it was coming out and I wanted to kind of put Tim Curry's Pennywise in my head before I went back to the Andy Muschietti, you know, Pennywise. And, uh, so yeah, it's a big one for me, man. And uh, it's one my dad and I've had a lot of conversations about and talked about, cause it's, again, it's a movie we watched together. It's a book we've both read so we can talk about it. And he always was the one that explained a lot of the stuff that was happening in it that I didn't get. Cause I, I immediately said like, I don't get why they have all this crazy sex stuff or, you know, all the, all this other thing going on. And he sort of had a, a different take on that with the way that, you know, well, Stephen King, what he's trying to do is tell you this, or he's trying to relate this to you. And I've always appreciated that about my dad is he could unfurl a lot of that sort of stuff and maybe demystify it. So it wasn't so taboo. And it was, you know, try to talk about it and it's still nasty and weird to talk about. But anyway, you know, that that's the long version is I've lived with it for a very long time in my life, Mike, and probably always will. It's one of my favorite works of King, uh, even as problematic as some of it may be for modern sensibility. I think it's one of his best works. 
I don't know that he ever got more creative with a set of characters. Um, and to the fact that he, you know, has references to it and stuff like the Tommyknockers and Dreamcatcher and all that kind of stuff years later that, you know, it's, it's a nice wink and a nod to all of us, you know, it fans of Derry, Maine. Um, I think it's, uh, it's cool to, to, that it's still such a big part of everybody's lives. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess so because I've I've talked about this when I did when Brian and I did part one two years ago and I probably and I talked about it on our most recent predictions episode just how much the book means to me the the miniseries I was more introduced I was I was I was on the playground in elementary school so this was probably like early two thousands and I just remember and this is more of an attestament now like however many years later when you look back on it but I just remember just on the playground and these kids were like oh do you know have you ever heard of pennywise the clown and i'm like no it's like oh it's a killer clown and this was early 2000s so this was like like this early 90s so like 15 years after that original miniseries came out yeah and and like just and like it's so random that like seven or eight year olds who have never don't even understand what the miniseries is probably haven't even seen it but through the grapevine, through the the first uh, beginnings of the internet, have heard about Pennywise, and mm-hmm. now now that is I, I Pennywise is just a, is a household name at this point uh, after these last two movies and with Stranger Things, but the impact that it has had, just as as a as a monster, just a, this creation of Stephen King is so profound from the book as well as you know that miniseries with Tim Curry. And the miniseries, it's it's weird because I've I I definitely enjoy the miniseries, especially for what it is. Uh, I think, and I think we would agree. I remember listening because I've listened to your, uh, like I said, the the uh, the it miniseries on your show many times. So I think I'm very much in agreement with you guys that that first night is is very well done. They do their best with it, and then part two, they very clearly ran out of money and they didn't know what to do, <laughs> and it suffers because of that. And yeah. I think that's mostly people also agree with that that sentiment and it's also nostalgia is driving it because what i think the miniseries at least that first part really hits home really well is that childhood nostalgia and i think that's the book really get nails that too which is why i think i kept coming back to it at such a young age because even as a as a young kid i could understand that 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 uh that nostalgia and that create and that how Stephen King writes childhood and I was experiencing yeah. it as I was reading it. So I think that was something really profound for me to experience that. Yeah. As well as there are some legitimately horrifying segments of this book. Oh, yeah. I still remember the the moment of um, Stan's interaction in the book at the standpipe when he's in these in this hypnotic trance and he goes down into the standpipe and it's very much like how Patrick Hoxetter is uh, is dis- is a uh, is in the first in, in the first movie when he goes into the sewer and then like the dead kids come in come after him. But mm-hmm. where in the first movie Pat, Patrick Hoxetter is killed in that scene, Stanley escapes by doing his uh, his his birds and and it's kind of hitting home that idea if you if you believe in something that it will defeat it it will happen. And and I just remember reading that scene as like a twelve year old and being. Yeah absolutely horrified and being put into a scene and that captured my imagination like i was scared by 
words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just amazing. The, the other thing that I hooked into, and this was one of the reasons I think my dad really liked this, is we were really big in Boy Scouts growing up. My brother and I, and my father was an assistant scoutmaster and ultimately a scoutmaster. And so we spent a lot of time doing scout things. And Stanley is a Boy Scout in the book. And in the miniseries, they play that up as well. And that becomes a thing like he's, he's when he's being scared by Pennywise, he repeats the scout oath over and over again and stuff like that. And, you know, my dad, in a way, to try to get us to learn this stuff, would try to find references to it in pop culture. So that was always one that he said, oh, you'll like this because this kid's a Boy Scout. You know, and and I I did. I always dug that. And I remember that to this day. And it's something that, you know, is missing from the the newer one because, and you know, I guess it just wasn't that big of a deal anymore. It's not, you know, something modern audiences would tie into or have any nostalgia for the way that in 1990 somebody still would about the 1950s and 60s and and things like that. But yeah, I'm with you, man. The way that this whole thing gets created through words and the Listening fear like there's a part where like a giant bird chases Mike in the book and you know he gets stuck in a pipe and all this kind of stuff and it's just really frightening I read that scene for the first time when I was on an airplane by myself fell asleep reading it and woke up and I'm in this giant tube in the air so I was very freaked out by it you know I mean I thought okay this is the first time I've read something that actually scared me and and got to me on that level so I've always thought that was really cool and there's such good imagery to it the thing that I want to say about the 1990 miniseries that has always worked for me And the thing that makes that first part work so well is the chemistry with the young actors is amazing in that. And it all starts with Jonathan Brandis, who, you know, is is long since passed away and dealt with his own demons and things like that. But clearly he understood how to play Bill Denbro as a damaged person. You know, because he himself was one. That's that's what we know now. And you see that in the performance. And for me, the only things that really make that 1990 miniseries work at all are Tim Curry, who famously has said, I didn't even want to do this, you know, and I just kind of hammed it up and it worked. So he gave life to something that was didn't have a voice ahead of time. And then now it's you know, so iconic. And then I think Jonathan Brandis playing Bill gave us something that, uh, was just just a, a fantastic performance, and I think it still works. And the adults in there are not bad. I don't want to say that. I just think they kind of get watered down because you can't do a lot of the complex adult stuff on 1990s television that you could do nowadays, and that they've you know done in the new film that we'll we'll talk about. Uh, but that that's always been my take on the miniseries. The first part of it is so engrossing; you just sort of want to finish the back end of it. But if you have to get up and you know clean the vacuum or something like that while that second part's on until the very end, well, that's okay. Yeah, and I can, and honestly, I completely agree with the things I remember about the miniseries. Like the most are Jonathan Brandis and Tim Curry, and it's funny because everyone remembers Tim Curry for this role, but it's guest appearance. He's not technically starring in the film; he's the guest appearance. But Jonathan Brandis is all, yeah, that's a tragic Hollywood story, and you know, it's his definitely, like you said, suffered from his own demons and unfortunately committed suicide, and he can't. And I think, I think if he, in today's standard, and I don't know if it's because of the suicide, but or if he was a legitimate actor, I think it's it's a big a mix of both because I think so many people look back on the miniseries and also Jonathan Brandis's work like Sequest and dare I say Never Ending Story Part Two, and you look back and say, yeah, this kid actually had something, but you know, transitioning from child actor into a young adult and trying to be serious and in his own struggles with depression and and things like that, but I do look back with fondness for Jonathan Brandis and Tim Curry and all the other kids, but those are like the big names. And so Hmm. 
now we can transition into part one. So, and we'll do some general thoughts real quick before we get into the, the part two, because I think it's near impossible to talk about chapter two without mentioning part one. So I want to talk about the hype leading into part one. So I was, this was one of the films I was super, this was my most anticipated film. I think it was 2017 this film came out mm-hmm. because I came in with such a book purist. I also too was thinking, oh, when is this film going to be remade? It's not a matter of of uh, of if, it's when. And then, you know, Stranger Things, the success of that launched uh, Stephen King and, and this this new nostalgia for the 80s. And then, you know, True Detective with season one, because Kerry Fukunaga was attached to be a director and writing, except he was taking this a little, actually not a little, he was taking this way into a different direction. And he is the, one of the next greatest uh, things in uh, the next era of, of Hollywood and cinema is Kerry Fukunaga. So I'm, I would be very interested to see his take on it. And I've read bits of his script and I think, I don't know, I think I would have liked it more than part one, but going into part one, I was like, no, 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 no. I was such a purist. I reread the book for like, I guess the first time officially when I was 20, 21, just from front to back, reading everything, not skipping, fully understanding. And so I was super hyped for this movie. The, the teaser trailer came out. I was like, oh my god, this is going to be awesome. Brian and I did that predictions episode, and we gave it... I guess we set the bar way too high, because then the film came out, and I guess we uh, we definitely fell more on the lukewarm to not really liking it that much. But before we get into that, what was your perceptions going into part one when it was announced? I mean, I, I was excited about the idea of it again, and hearing the names that were attached to it, I said, okay, this sounds very interesting. When they finally released the idea of the, like, we're just going to do the kid's story, and we may not do a part two, we may not do all of this, and I think by the time they were actually in production, they knew they were eventually going to do the part two, but th- th- when they decided to just pull it down to that half of it, I realized that this movie was being made in a wake of a lot of nostalgia that was happening. Um, I, I think Trey... Parker and Matt Stone don't get enough credit for having the pulse of pop culture that they have, the South Park creators, uh, because they made a good joke about this when The Force Awakens came about, and they called it member berries. You know, and that's just a kind of a running joke on South Park for years now. It's just that you're you're having all these things that you love and you remember just thrown in one pile together and it's all shoved in front of you and it's perfectly exactly what you want until you actually absorb it and you start to critically think about it and you realize like, well, there's really nothing there. I've seen all this before, but that's okay. Cause sometimes remaking a hit works, you know, I mean that there are pop stars out there that would not have a career if it worked for somebody else's song that they took and made into something. So I'm okay with that idea. And I'm okay with the idea of updating something for a new generation. Cause again, that miniseries was not perfect and did not need to be the only filmed version of this thing in my mind. But when I saw it coming out, I thought this is going to owe a lot to the Stranger Things phenomenon. And I thought that's okay. You know, I said, you know what? I like Stranger Things. I thought that was really well done. It's smart. And I, I'm down for the idea here. And then when I saw it, I walked out of it going like, okay, well, first off, this is clearly not made for me. You know, it is made for a younger generation to introduce them into it. And yep. that's, a, that's okay. Huh? I said, yep. yep. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's made, it's made for a younger generation. That's okay. So it's not made for me. So I am not meant to directly relate to these kids. But I had to think about, you know, I was this kid's age in 1989. 
you know, so it's about my life. Right. And I, I, I grew up in kind of a small town as well in, in Alabama and I had friends, but I didn't have close friends like this. I, I, it's just not my personality, but I had a few friends that I did things with at school and we would have adventures and stuff. But most of my friends were tied up in like my scout troop and stuff. So like all my memories were sort of centered around that. And so I didn't have an in with any of these people. I knew one of the actors. I knew Finn Wolfhard you know, from Stranger Things. And he wasn't even my favorite thing on that show. And there's nothing against him personally. I, he's fine as a performer. I just didn't care. You know, I, I didn't have anything. And when I walked out of it, I felt like, you know what? They cast really good actors, kid actors this time. I thought every one of these kids really had something to do. They've played with the timeline and they've played with the character motivations a little bit. But again, if I'm going to be give every piece of medium, that rule I give it is if you translate from one piece to the next, you have the right to do it differently. That's okay. So I was fine with that i didn't think it made sense in some cases like when they took the historian bit out of mike and they kind of gave it to ben's character and some of the other stuff and i felt like in the broad strokes they told the story of the kids version of it or the kids side of it without really setting up the adult stuff and i walked out of it feeling like i don't get that these people are as close as the lucky seven were in the book you know, like that, that's the one thing you get. I, th I don't think you get from anything else except the book is just how intertwined these people were in each other's lives because they literally had no one else, you know, and, and what Stephen King is writing about are seven different kinds of childhood trauma that could exist. And he just gave them, you know, each a character basically, but it, he took seven losers and put them together where they could only be together. You know, and I just didn't feel like that the first movie at chapter one gave me that togetherness. What I did think it gave us was incredible visuals and the use of technology in a way that the other movie couldn't or no Nightmare on Elm Street movies ever been able to do, which is to do weird dream imagery the right way. You know, and I thought it looked amazing. I thought Bill Skarsgård gave an incredible performance, a very different and weird performance, but an incredible performance as Pennywise. And I was genuinely interested in where they could go. I felt lukewarm about the movie. And on our show, you go back and listen to it. I ended up giving it a medium popcorn because it wasn't bad, but I didn't think it lived up to the hype or the potential in my own head. So I, when it, when it came out and I watched it, I thought, well, okay. And I mean, to say that I bought it, you know, I own it. It's in my voodoo catalog digitally. So I knew I, it was something I wanted to revisit. And the more times I've rewatched it, I've softened on it a little bit and come to appreciate it for what it is, though. I don't think it's a, a perfect film in spite of all of its successes. Yeah. And I agree with pretty much everything you've said. And so I'm looking at the box office right now. It grossed over seven hundred million dollars. I think it's one of the the highest R-rated horror films ever made. Yeah. I don't know if that's including like uh, inflation or anything like that, but that's a lot of money. And I think the mm -hmm. opening weekend, I think it was projected to make over a hundred million dollars. And I'm looking at it right now. It made a hundred twenty-three and a half million dollars opening weekend. Like that is absurd. That is insane that that happened. And I contributed to that. I saw it on uh, preview night. So. Yeah, but my – I definitely am Luke. I sound like a broken record. I was definitely super lukewarm, and you were saying it perfect that this film wasn't made for you, or and it wasn't made for me. It was made – this is the most – this is a horror film made for children. Or, which or which is amazing to think because both of these movies are hard R's. I mean, the language in them, the violence, the subject matter. These are, you have to have an adult 
get you in the theater to see this. And that is a heck of a gamble from a studio like Warner Brothers to to have put this out as such a hard R. So I give them credit for that because my initial fear was like, they're going to make this PG-13 and it is going to suck. And and not that everything PG-13 horror sucks, but a lot of times the compromises made make it suck. And they, no, they went for the throat in this. And the fact that it made $800 million blows my mind too. So it shows me that there are a lot of parents that were willing to be nostalgic with their kids in this kind of incredibly violent and sometimes perverse film. And I think, yeah, they are hard R's, which I, again, giving credit where credit is due. And it's not like this film is irredeemable. I think I don't like the film, but I don't hate it either. I think there's lots of narrative issues, and I think there's lots of, like, tonally it's all over, like, editing and pacing. It's all over the place. It's a lot of scenes that go on, like, five seconds too long, and then ones that end eight seconds too quick. I don't think the humor works in the film as much, which we'll talk about the humor in the next film in Chapter 2, but... I just think it's 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 a very like Muschietti is not in part one a he's very unrestrained. He I feel like he's throwing things in there. He's like, oh, this would be funny. Like the new like almost all the new kids on the blocks mm-hmm. jokes in the first part, for example, they got laughs out of me, but not like I didn't like it <laughs> because it was just so I laughed because of how absurd it was that that this yeah. was happening. But one of the things that I was. I was thinking about is just how I feel like the first part is just so superficial in, in everything. There's no subtext. There's no setup for chapter two. And like I said, it was, this is a horror film for children or for preteens because yes, both of these films are hard R, but they, but those R ratings mean very different things in both films. I think, I think that chapter one and chapter two are almost, it's, it's weird. It's the same director, same people making them, but you could tell that the studio was more involved in part one. And I feel like chapter two is the film that Muschietti wanted to make. So I, I think chapter two is the film you get to make after your first movie makes $800 million. Yeah, I mean, That's, that's exactly. really the truth of it is, is at that point you can go like, well, if you guys want it and you want me involved, you're going to let me have the control I want. And clearly he had a lot more control this time around. And one of the things like, that the two things that I, and I've talked about this at at nauseum, but now this is the last time I'll say it because you know we're not gonna because it's over. But yeah, you mentioned it that they really didn't nail that theme of the lucky seven and how close they were, especially because there's that moment where they have to rewrite the arc that they all the characters split, and I'm like that would never happen in with this group of people. Like yeah, they could fight, friends fight, but they would never ever split up. Also. Mm. When they in that first part when they go into Nebold Street house, it's only three people go into the house, not the whole seven, which was very odd to me. And then so that was, and then the end was just ridiculous to me in that it was it was just like I, I described it as Pennywise was just taking his lumps into the gang. Like it was the fight with Pennywise was never supposed to be this purely physical fight. And it just kind of makes Pennywise as a monster that much less scary to me because if kids can just literally beat the shit out of Pennywise and then he like, oh, and then he falls down the well, that's that's ridiculous because there's so much, and, and this is like the book knowledge coming into it, there's just so much more in, like there's so much more there and, and I was very curious how they're going to do this in the next part because nothing was set up. Also, just one more quick note about Skarsgård as Pennywise. He was great, but it also was a little bit... I think Chapter 2 is a way more... is a, is a much better 
representation of of Pennywise, and I think Skarsgård nails in the first part, but he does so much better in part two, because I think that Georgie scene really really emphasizes, I think, what's wrong with Pennywise in, in part one, and that Pennywise is supposed to be this character that entices children, and in that, when they're in, like, hip, that hypnotic trance of, oh, it's a clown, that's when he gets you. He's a predator. Mm-hmm. And with that Georgie scene, I didn't get charming or predator. I got creepy as hell, which was great. I think it, it worked just as a character, but in the context of the scene when Georgie isn't running away like what the hell or like the scene and I and I loved the inflection that Skarsgård brings to it but I think the moment where it was so weird when he's like oh you smell the circus and popcorn because they pop 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 and he starts laughing and then midway through he starts growling you're like okay like that's a really weird direction choice if this guy or this monster is trying to entice this child in into literally his grasp it's weird that he just started growling like a like a monster, which I think is the point, but it doesn't really work in the context of the film. But with all of that being said, I think all of that is fixed and then some in chapter two, because the, in chapter two, and we can, I guess, make, maybe start to transition in the part two. I think Pennywise is definitely more enticing. Skarsgård plays it a little bit more over the top, but also a little bit more subtly as well. It's I think it's definitely a more horrifying experience as Pennywise and as the as a as a film in general but with that being said I guess we can transition to part two and I want to ask you did you like part two what are your general thoughts on part two now that I guess it's a day later I guess this can still be kind of an initial impression or so <laughs> yeah I I uh, I went and saw this with Nick in the in the theaters we both live about 30 minutes from each other now so we could do that and then we went straight to his house and recorded what will be the film strip episode of this which was straight immediate reactions which is a lot of fun to do and now having sort of slept on it for a night and thought about it again uh, talking about it a day later here I I I really really liked it and I, I had a friend ask me what you what'd you think of this because he knew how I felt about the first one and I said I, it's so much better an experience even though it's I still feel like it's about 15 or 20 minutes too long and the movie's almost three hours long I, I felt like there was a good chunk of it that could have been cut out and I'll talk about what that is in a second but I thought they they fixed all the problems that I had with the chemistry of those kids. And it, the funny thing is, the way they did it is they show us flashback scenes of when they are split apart from each other and how Pennywise tried to get at them and how they were able to get over it and what, then what brought them back together again. And I thought that's such a neat way to fix the bond issue that I thought you didn't have in that first movie. Now you've got it. And the other thing is they absolutely 100% nailed the adult cast. I mean, down to looks too, which is not easy to do. But I mean, the guy that plays Ben, he has the same eyes as the kid version. It's it's creepy. I don't know if they're related or not, but it's it's weird. It's uncanny how great, even uh, like uh, James Ransom, Yes, and there's I love that, him. There's that transition yeah. when it's when they when he's at the um at the uh, the, the drug pharmacy store, where they, and, the kid and, and walk up and it's, and it's his the, face. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the nice transition and like the translucent transition. I'm like, oh my god, that is so scary. And, it and is. the kids have uh, aged a little bit when they filmed it, so it it kind of seemed a little bit better. Yeah. So, but yeah, I I also really I was into this movie like way like right from the beginning. Uh, yeah. But one of the I, things. I, I, one of the things I just want to say real quick, do you need to see part one to see chapter two? Because yeah, 
You know, there's I debated so much. That. There's yeah. so like there's enough flashbacks mm-hmm. of the kids that you don't really need to see chapter one. I mean, I mean the the first film kind of establishes some of the characters and Pennywise and, and like the town of of Derry because I think the first act is definitely a little really quickly a little too quickly paced, but it's definitely. Muschietti's playing catch up because mm-hmm. he's like, okay, shit, we like we have three hours. Originally, this film was going to be four hours long, and he, so we, there's like an hour that he had to leave on the cutting room floor. So it definitely he he had to play catch up with like, okay, we got to get all this stuff moving because there's a good two thirds of the movie that needs all the setup dedicated yeah. to it. But yeah, do you need to see part one to understand chapter two? You know what? No, you don't. And that's what amazes me the most about it. And Nick and I talk about it on the film strip show. He's the one that brought it up that it's, it's amazing. This could be a standalone film. You don't need the first one because they're going to give you every piece of necessary information that you need to be able to operate in this film as a standalone. If you are just tertiarily aware of kind of what that first movie is about, you could treat that whole thing as an epilogue and just watch this one. And you have everything you need. Here's what would make it just perfect for me. And I'll just tell right now the thing that I thought they should have just totally cut and left out. The Henry Bowers part in chapter two is totally unnecessary. Because it, it all it does is just replay what you know from the book and the miniseries. And it, it gives Eddie a neat joke later to tell. But it doesn't really serve any purpose. And Nick and I talk about it. Like if you just cut that out, that's a good 15 minutes. You could trim out of this movie and you lose nothing because the way he goes down and the, the end of that first movie, it's easy to assume Henry Bowers is totally dead. All right. Now they, they make an answer up for it in this one just so they can bring the character back and do the stuff with him again. But I felt like that didn't need to be in this. You didn't need it. It didn't advance anything. And I, I really appreciated the fact that they didn't sideline Mike as a character, the way he gets sidelined in the book and in the, the 1990s miniseries, uh, because I thought he was really interesting. Um, they, they, they built a movie with a part two that allows you to enjoy it as if you've never seen part one. And that is very, very hard to do. And I tried to think about series of movies where could you ever watch part two having not seen part one and, and still be able to operate in it. And I got to thinking, I was like, okay, so what are some of my favorite part twos, right? Jaws 2. Nope, that doesn't work without part one. (laughs) Halloween 2. Absolutely not. Any version of Halloween 2, by the way, including the one that's probably coming up (laughs) later this year. Um, Doesn't work unless you've seen the first one. Uh, You know, the second Matrix movie. You should skip it anyway, but no, it wouldn't make any sense if you haven't seen the first one. Um, Empire Strikes Back does not work if you haven't seen Star Wars and New Hope. Um, you know, I, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom kind of works because it's technically a prequel, but you know, that's, that's a different kind of movie series. And those really all kind of work as standalones anyway. And if there's carryover, it's just a joke, you know, it's just something for the audience to nod at. Um, so, I mean, I really couldn't come up with another two. I mean, even the more famous one, like I thought, okay, could you just watch Godfather part two and having never seen Godfather part one? And I was like, no, absolutely not. You have to see that first one to understand Vito as a as an older man so that you can understand what he went through as a younger man and I know I'm a big fan of Coppola's Godfather saga where they recut it all chronologically and all that oh, stuff yeah. and and I know Muschietti has talked about that he's got a version of this that melds these two movies together and I'd, I'd be curious to see what that looks like but I'll tell you now I don't think you have to have the first one to be able to operate in this one so this one's unique in that aspect is that it doesn't you don't have to have seen the first one um, to get it and what's funny is I rewatched the first one about a week before 
going to see this one in theaters because I thought I need to refresh because it had been a while since I'd seen it. And I was sitting there laughing at myself going like, I could have totally skipped that. That was two hours I didn't need to spend because they just catch you up in so many ways in, in this movie by itself. Yeah, I, I actually watched I watched the first part like maybe a few hours before. Brian and I had seen the film in Philadelphia and and so I was on the train watching it. We got back to uh, his his girlfriend's apartment and we watched it there, just finishing it up. And I was like, oh, just, I mean, I remembered everything because I have it on DVD. Like, it, it's a film, like I said, I, I don't hate, but I don't like, but I, you know, still, I support Muschietti and I, and, and I want to revisit the film. And, and so, yeah, going into it, I was like, okay, wow. And so this is another thing. You don't need to see the first part. And, and I was saying this a little bit off air before we started, does someone need to read the book to understand this as well? Because, and I tried, I tried asking, uh, Brian's girlfriend came with us and I tried asking her, okay, did you follow what was happening? Because I, it's like growing up in a world without like Citizen Kane. Like I don't know film without Citizen Kane's influence on everything. And, and just like it, I don't know the impact of this movie because because I have the book knowledge to explain everything. So I don't know if she necessarily understood the ritual of Chud, the the smoke hole, the psychedelic explora- exploration, like Pennywise always being in, embedded in the town of Derry. But I do think, just trying to look at this more objectively, I think Muschietti did a really good job explaining everything in one film because there is some abstract stuff in the book and in this film which is why I think I like the film a lot more it's way more cerebral and surreal and it doesn't and it's not superficial like the first part it makes you think about what's going on and what you're seeing isn't necessarily reality like the ritual of chud I think is one of the greatest parts of this movie in my opinion but but so do you so back to the original question do you need to read the book to understand part two because there's a lot going on you know, this is what I'll say about that. If you have read the book, you will know things that are coming and will know the differences. And And I think it enhances this for you. But I think it's, it's even better if you haven't read the book and you don't know what's coming. Good example. Good example. Nick's 12-year-old son, Chase went to this with us. He's seen the first one. Um, this is a kid that's grown up on horror movies and stuff like that. So nothing scares this kid. Um, and he's really smart and stuff, but he hasn't read the book, you know, or anything like that and really has no desire to. And he more or less like the first movie. He really dug this. And I oh, was asking awesome. him afterward, I'm like, did you get this? And he's like, oh yeah, I totally understood that. Like he took it just on face value for what it was because the characters do a good job of explaining, here's what the ritual is and here's what it is without getting caught up in what in the book man is like pages and pages and pages of just trippy stuff uh, they they get you through it enough in this uh, really because Isaiah Mustafa and James McAvoy totally act their asses off in those scenes and and sell it to us in a way that it makes it so palatable so I don't think you have to have read the book to see this and I would even venture to say that if you haven't you might enjoy this more because as someone who has lived with that book for so long now I can't not sit there and go like oh yeah that's I remember that sort of like that okay they moved that to that person and I had to make myself stop doing that so I could just watch the movie for what it was yeah and that's Nick that's awesome like 
great father of the year. Like you're, and I think that's such an achievement. <laughs> like his twelve I mean, year old son. Let me just tell you, that. like, like this kid, like grew up watching Alien and Aliens movies. He has like a he had a stuffed like face hugger in his crib. Like Chase is the <laughs> coolest kid ever. I yeah. Oh my god, that's 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 awesome. But I. Uh, yeah, I and and that's one of the things like I really dug all the surreal imagery of this film and I love like experimental surrealist filmmaking. So I was digging it. And even like I was like okay, this is like the like I keep saying the ritual of Chud, but like there's all this happening, there's all the the uh like all the, I really love the idea of like the like the tokens and all the characters have mm-hmm. to or the totems and all the characters have to go back. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's let's talk about. I guess we can focus with the story, and then we can work on to the characters. So there's lots of rewrites and omissions here, and I think this is where Muschietti really shines because I I thought the first part I was so disappointed because I went in as a book purist and I reread the book like a month before the film came out. Went saw the first part, was really disappointed from a purist perspective and just a film going uh, experience. And then, so this one, I was like, I'm not going to do any of that. Not that my expectations were low, but I don't want to set myself up for failure because I just wasn't sure. So I didn't reread the book, but I I know a lot of the beats of the book. I remember yeah. a vast majority of that long, like, of that long book. So I didn't need to, to, to refresh myself because I just, it was still in my memory. But going in, like, I, I, and definitely there were things that needed to be cut. Like the whole Audra and Tom storylines, yeah, did not need to be in the movie. I think it was one of the weaker parts of, of of the miniseries. I'm so glad they just were name dropped and they never came back up. Uh, I I think the rewrites of having Mike experimenting with with uh, psychedelics and with the Native Americans, mm-hmm. and because now you're now you're adding something that's a little bit more grounded in reality and not just this really ex- abstract thought of a, of like this uh this cosmic interdimensional battle. Now it's a little right. bit more grounded. I thought that rewrite was excellent. Well, can I say that about the Native American thing in particular? How smart I thought that was to oh, tie that totally into agree. totally ancients. Agree. I, I mean, I just thought you know what a what a great idea. Like there's, there's a lot of shows that have done that and have used that or co-opted that as part of the narrative. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer did a little bit of that back when I was watching that. And I always appreciated it because I thought it was, it was done really smartly. And I thought this was the same too. And what I really love about it is in the book and in that mini series, one of the big changes is Mike tells them straight out it's back. And that's what gets them all to come back and, you know, Stanley to make his choice and all that stuff. Um, and, and this one, he totally lies to them. He does not tell them why they have to be there. It's just that you need to come home and i love that they deal with the fallout of that of like hey man you should have told us because then we would have said no and then and he said that's exactly why i didn't tell you but that was a very real thing that like in you know this movie is not anything about real life but if it was like in reality you couldn't get away with not you know not eventually spilling the beans on this and i thought that was a smart uh character bit again to make this group seem like they were actually friends because again that was my big complaint about the last one is I never bought that these people were actually friends with each other it was just more this is the best I can do and in this movie they are totally friends they are like lifelong bonded family with each other yeah exactly that the the whole and I like I said I thought the beginning of the film like the first act was definitely a little quick on the pacing just but I understood that Muschietti has to dedicate the other like two and a half hours of the film 
to setting up all of this really abstract stuff. And but to be really- fair, that's not all him. That Gary Dauberman is the screenwriter, and I know a lot of people had hands in this and did rewrites, and Bill Hader wrote a lot of his lines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Gary Dauberman writes in the Conjuring series, and if you've seen any of those movies, the first act of those movies is all about just throwing you in the scene and getting you set up for a long act two and a long act three. So that's a Dauberman thing. And, and I oh, yeah. appreciated his touch on this because I thought... I didn't like the way some of the jump scares got set up in the first movie. And yeah, they're a little telegraphed in this, but I realized that as somebody who's 42, that's watched horror movies for 35 years of my life, you know, so I'm going to see that um, chase who again, who was there had no idea what some of that stuff was coming and it jumped hmm. him. And he's, this is not a kid that gets scared again. And I, it was neat to watch it with an audience of people who didn't know what was about to happen. And they experienced that. So I give all of that credit to Doberman to be able to set scenes up that way. And well, I and and I it's it's one of those things that it yes it was quick, but I'm glad it was handled the way it was. But I definitely thought the opening of the film with Adrian Mellon was great, like in that it did set up everything super well. And this is where we can get into the also. Uh, I'm going to touch on the CGI because I think the CGI comes more in with the characters with Pennywise because the CGI was what completely took me out of the first film. Mm. I thought maybe a good seventy to eighty percent of the CGI in the first film really was not good and really took me out of it but here i thought it worked and especially when pennywise morphed and like not not the very end we'll get to the ending later but um when he was morphing in his face into the creature and his in his jaws where it didn't work with georgie because i thought i could just it, it, it wasn't even an uncanny valley i was like that looks fake but here i went with it like when adrian mellon went over the edge and and Pennywise's whole... Well, first off, that really blurry image of Pennywise getting closer and closer and extending his hand was so creepy and well done. Yeah. And then him just taking a that shot, at, like that bite out of his underarm, which, you know, verbatim from the book. But yeah. then you get that little bits of him just, you know, covered in blood and him just kind of slowly chewing the meat. And then all the balloons come out. Excellent. Well done. Even... One of the things that I thought, and this, I guess we can get into, well, nah, I, I was going to say, even when Pennywise eats some of his victims, which we will get into later, mm-hmm. I went with it because it was quick and it was in the dark and there wasn't overly lit. I couldn't, it, it, and it was quick, which I really did appreciate and I went with it. And and so, and that, I guess, goes into the writing of, of Pennywise and these characters. I thought it was way, way, way better than the first movie. There was actual substance to this movie, I think, and there was yeah. things that were driving me on. I want to ask you about the humor of the film. Did it work for you? or Because oh. I thought the humor of the first film was hit or miss, and then this film, I thought it mostly worked. I, I will say now, none of the humor in the first movie really landed for me, but again, I go back to it wasn't really written for me either, so that's just, you know, I'm out of time for that. This one... And I am not a Bill Hader fan. I don't hate him either, but I don't watch his stuff. You know, I don't watch SNL. I I don't really see the movies he's in. I thought he was. (laughs) Say what? I said maybe super bad. That's pretty super, much yeah, what I yeah. Love him in, but. He was, I mean, I like him in the bit things I've seen him do like that. He has a really good bit part in forgetting Sarah Marshall and some of this other stuff. Um, and I thought he was perfect in this. And what I really appreciated was the fact that James Ransom was allowed to be funny because I think he is a really funny character actor. And I loved how McAvoy got to be funny. 
as well. Like, I think James McAvoy has great comic timing. He just doesn't get to use it much. And there are two or three times in this movie where he does scene recreations that are from the movie Wanted, which I think I'm the only person on earth that likes that movie. But I love his performance in that, where he's just having a freak out all the time. Uh, And he has several of those in this movie. And I thought the humor totally worked here. And then when they let the kids do the humor again, as they brought them back for their flashback scenes and stuff, it worked so much better. And I attribute that to the fact that I felt like the adults really had something going on. There was chemistry there. And then the the humor just worked better. So I really appreciated it this time. I, I found myself laughing out loud several times in this movie, much more than I anticipated. Yeah, I definitely found myself going, and I don't know if that was because I was going with the movie a lot more, so I was giving it that leniency, but I thought Bill Hader was definitely a lot better in the film, or even even in parts that I didn't even think it was going to work, like uh, when all well, of the characters are getting their phone calls, and Eddie yeah. gets into a car accident, Richie... <laughs> goes out and throws up and then botches his his stand-up performance or well you know the, the thing about that, that that's so much better is that it the Richie Tozier that we know from the book has never been realized on the screen until Bill Hader got a hold of it I don't think when Finn Wolfhard was given a lot of good stuff to do last time uh, in this and I know Scott Green and and uh, Harry Anderson bless their souls were not given anything to work <laughs> with in that 1990 when they were just cracking weird jokes um, and that is kind of what Richie does but you've got to understand like the reason Richie does that is because he's covering for a really horrible home life that we still don't really know anything about in these new movies but you know that that's his defense mechanism and so it, the fact that he always goes to that and that it works and it's so funny, but that nobody else cracks up by it. Like, especially in the, the serious means where he's trying to undercut the tension. Nobody's really laughing at him. They're telling him to shut up. Right. But we're laughing as an audience. Right. Which means the humor is working because his friends would not laugh at it, but everybody else would think it's funny. I think one of the best things is where he totally goes off on that just random kid at the Chinese restaurant. He's yeah. trying to quote a line back to him <laughs> and he's just losing it. And he's like, do you want a picture? No, I think I'm good. And I was like, Oh, that was, I'm perfect. not scared of you. <laughs> Fuck yeah. you. It's like, yeah. it's your opening line, dude. And he's like, want a picture like that? Like that worked. And yeah. it's because he's, he's a comedic actor that has yeah. that comedic timing. Even in the scenes when at the final confrontation with it, the like the scary not scary door mm-hmm. that should not have worked in this movie no. and it totally did with with uh because it's that comic relief in this film that i didn't even know needed the comic relief of no. like the scary but scene i will, and, and I will I say thought, too though so much of so much of bill Hader's performance works because he and james ransom have a have a chemistry together on screen and I, they shouldn't they, they, they should have nothing to do with each other, but they totally work together. And part of that is, too, I know the characters Richie and Eddie were very close friends in the book. And that's never been realized really well on any screen version of this. So the fact that they, you know, there's some sort of unrequited relationship involved there and all that, I thought was a, an interesting twist and a neat thing to do for modern audiences. But it works because these two actors are giving you things that work down to the, the point where, you know, Eddie's dying in the end. And his last thing to Richie is to tell him another your mama joke to try to get yeah. one back on him. And I was like, Man, that's, that only works because these two together are perfect frickin' frack and they're funny. Yeah, exactly. I think James Ransom's humor, it's not so much him. I just think it's so absurd that it, it kind of worked for me. Yeah. Uh, like, for instance, when he's going hit for his totem and the and the uh, the leper comes after him, and there's that really weird scene when it's throwing up on him, and but the music stops and it turns into like an 80s 
like like kind of like uh, like Top Gun when they're when Tom yeah, it's Cruise, a ballad all of a sudden like having sex and it's like and and he's like throwing up on him like it's weird and I was like okay that didn't really work for me because thirty seconds before we have the uh the kid version of Eddie and is like being traumatized that his mom's about to die and there's that whole subtext of what his mom represents to him and then we like another two minutes later we have this ballad of this leper throwing up in his face and he's choking it and and then he leaves and like it's a push door Uh, yeah kind of weird but and i think that's again goes back like that's like the little bit where i'm like i kind of scratch my head well but there's one thing this movie is is smart about doing and it's something that the 1990 miniseries did not do well and it's something that the book does incredibly well is that these people were were losers all right for a reason Hmm. And even as adults, in spite of the fact that they're really successful, they're still kind of losers. And losers would do things like this and, and would have this reaction. And the fact that you have these gorgeous Hollywood people, and they all are in one way or another, because that's just how we do things, right? You know, you're a normal looking kid and then you grow up to be a you know movie star or a goddess like Jessica Chastain or something like that. Yeah, sure. You know, whatever. But the fact that they still are allowed to be kind of losery and do sort of stupid stuff like that. I mean, when he comes back into the hotel and he's just covered in goo and he walks by Bev and she's like, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. Gotta go be back in a minute. You know, like he's just sort of in his little, um, anal retentive mode. I love that, that that carried through for the whole movie. And I mean, again, I lay a lot of that on ransom because I think he's a great character actor and he got what the role was all about. And then he and hater together just had incredible chemistry. Exactly. And the one thing I want to talk about, one more thing about the rewrites, and then we can transition into, I guess, two characters. We can, I, I want to talk about Bowers and Pennywise. And then and, and the last thing I want to talk about is the rewrites, specifically more about the ending with the Ritual of Chud, but then we can transition into Stanley, because that's very interesting, but we should end with that one. So I just wanted to ask you, with the rewrite of uh, Richie being gay, did that... Because going into the film, I kind of heard rumors that this was going to happen. Didn't know how I felt because the whole thing was that it was Eddie's character in the novel who had the repressed homosexuality, uh, you know, conflict. And that was what the leper originally represented was not this OCD Munchausen syndrome by proxy. It was all overtly sexual and he was high he was repressing his like homosexual feelings and it's it's kind of weird in the book because leading up to that scene he's you know as a child he's talking about masturbating and he's hearing about like sex birds in the beads but like playground birds in the beads and and like and and all these like 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 uh very sexual driven things but as a child he doesn't understand this so then he goes to the house on Niebold Street, and this leper or this hobo leper comes out and is being very overtly sexual, saying like, "Oh, like I'll give you a blowjob, like I'll give you this," and then he says, "Oh no, I'm gonna get like AIDS or hepatitis, and I'm gonna die." And and but the whole undertone is he's repressing his homosexuality. But in the mo- in the movie, it's now kind of swapped to Richie. Going into the movie, I didn't know how I was gonna feel about it, but when I was there, I was like, "Okay, this is actually working pretty well." And it's not so, they're not hyper focusing on it, which is what I thought was going to happen. I thought Eddie and Richie were going to come together and they were going to have, like, I don't know, a, a gay moment where they come out to each other and they've always loved each other, which I think would be really kind of exploitive and just uh, very, uh, very off- offensive, I think, because 
it's just kind of shoehorning this message in there. But no, I just think Richie, in this context of this film, is a character who is gay, and that is he's coming to terms with his homosexuality, but it's not defining him. But so I was just curious about what that rewrite, swapping it to Richie, if that, if it not bothered you, if you took any notice of that, did you go with it? I knew that was that was part of this before going into it. And I'll tell you why I knew that, because I knew I was going to have a chance to see this movie exactly once before Nick and I had to record about it. So I and having read the book and knowing unless they just go wildly different, there's only a couple of ways this can end. I, I didn't care. So I went spoiler heavy and I, I knew that was coming. You know, I knew the scene with the bridge where he recarved the name. We were going to get that reveal. And so I knew it. So I guess, like, if they were supposed to stun me, it, it didn't. But I got the idea of it. And I, I got the way it worked in this one. Because I think Bill Hader plays such good emotions in this movie. That you, you realize, I don't think Eddie has any latent homosexual tendencies. Like maybe the character did in the in the book or anything i don't think in the movie version he does it all i think richie always has and doesn't know how to deal with it and and grew up in a time when you were i mean it was you were taunted about this you know growing up and stuff like that i have friends who were taunted mercilessly about this growing up so i can't imagine what that experience was like for them and so for this guy again his humor has always been his shield and he's just hidden behind it to the point that he finally lets go of all of the baggage and the wall of it. And one of the best scenes is when he is just absolutely just blubbering after they're washing themselves off in the, in the water after, you know, the final battle and stuff. And everybody just sort of, you know, puts hands on him together and lets him know it's okay. You know, and he comes to terms with it. Like, you know what? I'm just going to be me, you know, whatever. And at this point, what difference does it make anymore? Because he's, after you go through something like that, how could you not just be like, whatever, you know, at this, at, yeah. at this point, you have something like this. So for me, like as a character moment, I thought it was fine. I know that that's Andy Machete and that's part of his life. And that's something he's very, you know, um, out about and talks a lot about. And it's one reason he wanted to include the Adrian Mellon thing in, which, you know, I think a lot of people thought, Ooh, that's going to be real controversial. And I'm like, not if you've read the book, that's how the book <laughs> starts. And that's, I mean, it, you talk about transliterating from the book to the screen, they did it in that Adrian Mellon scene. And I thought, man, that's bold to go with that because in 1990, there was no way they were going to be allowed to do that. Tommy <laughs> Lee Wallace has talked about like, well, that's getting cut because we can't do that. And Stephen King knew it then too. And I, you know, King himself has said, you know what? I, never thought about it like that but it, yeah it kind of works it's it's cool and you know he was fine with it i thought it as a character motivation it was fine and i didn't have any problem with it um i honestly am surprised they still let ben and bev wind up together because it felt like they had done everything they possibly could to keep them apart um in this and that they were just going to not do this and they were going to make um I don't want to be you know, smart aleck here, but like a larger feminist statement, because Bev does this whole bit when she's leaving her abusive husband. She takes off the wedding ring. She leaves it on the stoop at that gorgeous house. She's done with that life. And I thought at the end of this, they would be like, you wrote me that poem. That made me feel good about myself. They share a big embrace. And then they go their separate ways because she doesn't need somebody else. You know, uh, I was surprised that they let those two wind up together, honestly. Yeah. And. I, and yeah, I, I, like I said, I didn't really, it didn't bother me once I saw the actual context of what they were talking about. I think it did really work in the context of this film. And yeah, with the whole thing with Beverly and Ben, I don't know, I did, I think I liked the interaction here way more because um, the, the, the adult that plays Ben 
like like you mentioned earlier, the casting for all all of them were great, but I saw it so much more in him. Like I can see uh Jeremy, I think Ray Thomas is the kid's name, like grow yeah. up to be into this actor who I haven't really seen too much. I know he's like Australian or New Zealand and and yeah. he er, and he and he's been doing like things over there here and there, but I'm, I'm I want to check him out because I thought he was one of my favorite performances of the adults, and it was so I, tragic, yeah. like yeah. watching him with those longing eyes, like just like oh I, I've oh, and he's and he, it was interesting because he never forgot about Beverly. Which oh no, I, I really he never let that it go, detail. even though he should have. You know all that. Yeah, I I liked that. I'll I'll be honest with you. Like for him, I got like you know, a plus lifetime actor, you know, which is fine. There's, I like lifetime movies. So I'll admit that now I thought he, he looks like he could be on a good WB show or something like that. Like I, you know, I didn't think he was tremendous. Um, the fact that he's foreign doesn't surprise me because it's like, he's hiding an accent and he's doing it terribly. And I wonder what he really sounds like when he talks. Um, but I, I liked him. I, I'd tell you how I described him in the film strip show. As I said, he looks like one of two things, either he's selling you P 90 X, you know, late at night on TV yep. or, or, he is like the the music minister at like a mega church on TV or something because he looks like that. I mean, he, he really does. So I didn't really put him and Jessica Chastain together at all. I thought McAvoy and her had a lot of spark and um, the same way Annette O'Toole and Richard Thomas do in that 1990s one, by the way. Like John Ritter's good in that and he and Annette O'Toole are friends and they have a they have fun together. But like Richard Thomas and Annette O'Toole really had sparks with each other. You could see it. I don't think they did in real life, but they played it on the screen. And I thought it was neat that McAvoy and, and Chastain still they were able to still recreate that without doing a mimic of it, you know? And I, I was surprised. Like, I, I mean, I like the fact that Jess Wexler gets the cameo as, as Bill's wife and just tells him off on the movie set. And <laughs> all of that was funny to me. And I wouldn't have been surprised if like, you know, they had, you know, split up and then he ended up with Bev or again, like I said, I think it would be even more, you want to modernize this. Bev goes her own way. She doesn't need anybody else. You know, she needed these people and these are her friends, but she doesn't need a romantic need in the end of this. I, I don't know. I I didn't care that they wound up together, but it didn't bother me either. I just was surprised they still went with it. Well, and that goes into when we get to the ending. The ending is extremely schmaltzy, and I and I don't I, yeah, I don't really know how I baby. how I like feel about that. But so the last two characters I want to talk about, and and one thing I I've been thinking about. I love the cameos in this film. I loved. Oh, yeah. I, I loved uh, the original Ben Hanscom character, or like that the child actor was in the be- the Hanscom and Partners uh, meeting. First thing I noticed, I saw him. Really like Stephen King's uh, kind of needful things, play playful little banter. I mean, it, well, it went the, on a the, little too. The long. best cameo, the best cameo, Mike, is the joke about Stephen King, and that, that has been for years, and that they lay that on the Denbro character. He's a great author that sucks at the ending. You know, and I was like, well, that is exactly Stephen King. And the fact that he would let them poke that kind of fun, it lets you know where he is in life, too. And I I love that. I thought that was the funniest thing that they could have done. Well, it's weird because that whole idea, like, yeah, it's a running joke throughout the whole film. But then, like, for the book readers, that's like the whole ending of the film is like the punchline to that joke because they really do change the ending to this film because they no don't. one likes the ending to that book. And I guess mm-hmm. the original miniseries because that <laughs> original ending is the book ending. But um, so, uh, there was also Andy Muschietti was just in the background. He wasn't talking. I wish he did. Um, and I also really like the small detail that it's more in the book book but i noticed it here just having that it was that little easter egg that you'd see i love that they recast 
the woman that played Eddie's mom as his wife. Oh yeah, that was and great. Because it's because in the book they really heavily imply like he married the exact same. Well, Beverly marries her dad, um, and Eddie married Eddie marries his mom. His mother. And yeah. it's and it, and I really like that detail that it's literally the exact exact same woman. And it's the first thing I noticed. Like, oh wow, that's like a really good nod to. And but they never really explore that. But that's all you need is that little visual detail that he married his mom. And I thought that was really yeah. awesome in visual filmmaking. But yeah, those cameos, it just added more than like the cam or the little Easter eggs in the last film. I thought these were I got a little giddy when I'd seen them. Or just being like, Oh, that's really smart. And if it's like if you catch it, you catch it. Like you see the same actress who played the mom as his wife, then you catch it and you get it immediately. And she's even nagging him in the same way that his mom was. So yes. that's like And, and, and I love like how that. he leaves her like I love you mommy and he hangs up and she's like what? You know, <laughs> which was you creepy and weird but funny. And so, but it's a way so, to tell. It's a way to tell something without having to have two scenes and two pages of dialogue to let us in on it. You, yeah, this guy exactly. grew up to be an uptight person. Uh, that's obviously he's in a job that he's a risk analyst, which totally fits. You know, and which is different than the book because he does the limo gig in the book uh, and in the miniseries and stuff. But I love how he he's in a a kind of thing that uses his anxiety or his natural anxiety as part of his career. Which you know, as someone who works in career services and has spent a you know a lifetime doing this and helping people figure this out is that you got to find what you are naturally good at and just keep doing that and find a way <laughs> to do that for people. So I'm like, well, good, good for you, Eddie. You've got some good career counseling all the way. So that, which was good. Uh, clearly you needed personal counseling too, but you didn't do that. So that's okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I thought that was funny and, and get, you're right. It's a, it's a quick way to tell us who these people are without having to spend minutes upon minutes on each of them. Um, and, and it brings you right in, which again is, is a marvel of this movie because you would think that that means like, well, I needed to see the first one to know how this person became this. You really don't. They're going to unveil it for you later on. So just hang on and you'll get it all through the film. Yeah, exactly. And so the other two characters, one I think we're going to be a little quick on, and that is Henry Bowers. And then I completely agree with you what you said earlier is that he could have been completely taken out, excised from this movie because he doesn't add anything because he can't be, he's not a villain or he's a, he's a, he's like subvillain, but he doesn't fill the role that the book Bowers had in that. So part one, I thought he was a wasted potential again. I was like, there's no way that he's coming back in part two. The running joke that Brian and I say is when he was pushed down that well, he hit every brick on the way down. Like, yeah. there's no and 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 I was rewatching it the like the night before, and I and you could hear the echo. Didn't hear a splash. Didn't hear a thud. Like he must have fell to like the center of the earth or something. Well, you know, Brian and I, uh, Brian, uh, Mike and I, uh, God, I've laid everybody's name. Nick <laughs> and I talked about this and he said I, I you know before I could even ask him like how is he still in this movie he said I can only think that Pennywise saved him and that's why they put that scene in where the the waters flush out of the barrens and he comes washing out with all the other dead kids but he's alive somehow that somehow Pennywise used his powers to keep him alive because there's no way that dude survived that and I, yeah. when I was listening to your your uh, episode uh, you know expectations episode which I love by the way um, <laughs> and, and let's do it twice even I I, I chuckled at that the whole time like no that dude hit every brick on the way down <laughs> and, and so the, yeah i agree he, and he was dead was, as a doornail. and that was a really cool visual i think when the barons literally or the the sewers get washed out with the corpses and then he just he's not amongst them he just arises 
Yeah. And I think and and that's Muschietti's camera or cinematography or him working in tandem with the DP and the cinematographer how mm-hmm. it just slowly turns around and it's upside down it's inverted and then he just rises from the blood. And that's where I can kind of think okay there's obviously some magic here. I I'm sorry Nick Hamilton you I think that's the kid's name. You look the part but you are so one note like I I just I didn't really like he just didn't do anything for the role but and I don't necessarily no. think that's his fault the, I just the think pro- the character was written one dimensionally well but- he is and the thing you got to know is the Henry Bowers character is Stephen King's fear of greasers which he's written about over and over again and when you move that 30 years forward to 1989 it just doesn't work he's just a redneck a-hole now and that it just didn't play right I I'll be honest, man. They could have totally cut Henry Bowers out of both versions of this, and I think it would have been fine, but they definitely needed to leave him out of the second part. I I can't say it any better than that. It didn't do anything for the story, and it's it's really extra stuff. It's part of what they could have cut 15 minutes from, and then we had a shorter movie. One with you. but And the thing is what bothers me most is Bowers does serve a purpose in the story, and it's... It's like in in the as a child he brings the group together and that apocalyptic rock fight is what solidifies the group in their in their na- in their uh, just becoming together because they rescue Mike and he's the final group and they forge the, mm-hmm. they forge their bond through violence and they can stick through it and then Bowers also is the is the driving force that keeps pushing them closer and closer to it in the fir- as a, as the when they're confronting the monster it as children. And then he's also the scapegoat, which allows people to further forget, like, the town. Like, I don't need the scapegoating part. But then, in the in the second part, as adults, Bowers is the... Because it is legitimately afraid. And he... And, and the whole... All the... Every time he comes to the, the adults, when they're trying to remember, he's he's bluffing the whole time. He can't hurt them because he knows, like, he's weakened by them, the power of the Lucky Seven. So he's just doing theatrics, hoping that it scares them away and that they succumb to their fear. But he he pulls the third-party proxy of Bowers, like, okay, I can't kill them, so you should. And that is an interesting dynamic that is not explored in the second part. He literally... Is just he escapes from he escapes from the the mental ward and is driven there by a very cool looking I have to say uh, rotting corpse of Patrick Hawksetter and and then he I don't know fails to kill the characters twice and it was yeah and the and, first time was yeah. humorous I was like oh shit they killed Bowers really quickly he got stabbed in the heart guess not but uh and then the second one-off joke when he attacked Mike. I actually kind of liked Bowers in this as a villain, but I don't even... Actually, I take that back. I don't... I just I just kind of liked seeing this guy who was... He just looked batshit insane. He even on the... I said this in the predictions episode. He was on the red carpet, and he looks like like a, like a cracked-out like yeah. drug really addict. He was on a bender. Yeah, the whole I was time. like, oh my god, dude. Like, take mm-hmm. a shave and, and get a haircut or something. But, um... <laughs> Like, it looks like they just threw a, a suit on him and slapped him a few times. And, all right, walk out there. But, and I guess that, sorry, I know he's listening. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he, he, lo- he he worked the part. But, yeah, Bowers could have just been excised from this movie altogether. Because then they kill him and they just, I guess, leave his corpse in the library. 
You're like, all right, like we're just gonna forget about that. Nothing. Well, I mean, they added. make a joke about that in the miniseries too. Like, in the, they're just gonna leave him in the hotel. You know, yeah, leave, so they put, leave they the have TV to dispose of that body, which is always yeah, a problem. Put the TV on high. Put the do not yeah. disturb sign, and let's get out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because by the time this happens, which you know, it's easily explained in the book. Because and this is something that they they didn't do at the end of this movie, and I kind of wish at some point we would ever see this version. At the end of the book, the town of Dare is destroyed in a flood, basically. Like it almost has to be reborn through water and flooding to cleanse itself after all these you know decades and eons of evil or whatever. And they don't do that it, here. And I kind of wish, like, of course, that covers up the Bower stuff and a lot of other things too. And I kind of wish they had done that again. I, I, I'm with you. The ending of this is rather schmaltzy and it's very Spielbergy, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. It just didn't fit entirely with what we had. Um, I, I do want to talk about one other thing. We haven't talked about him much, and it's interesting because the Mike character is very different in both of these versions. And I I like what they did in general. I kind of feel like he gets you know 20 minutes in the beginning, and then he doesn't come back until the last act. He just disappears for an hour from the movie. I'd literally almost forgotten where he was. And so I'm glad they include him as part of this and that he's a more integral part of the end because he does just get sidelined in the book and stuff. Um, but I wanted to get your thought of like what they did with the, the Mike character because it's very different than any version we've had before. Yeah, so the first part, I think he was a non-character. Uh, and that's same goes for Stan in that, and I think Nostalgia Critic on YouTube, when his review of it, they did it perfectly. So they... So just a little tangent on the Nostalgia Critic. He does these reviews of films very... I think it's very smart. Uh, he's, he's hit or miss with some people. But when he was... So to avoid copyright strikes, he gets his crew of actors and they kind of recreate the scenes in it with their own commentary to it. And what they did with Stan and Mike is they casted like whoever they were and like, hi, I'm Stan. And then they made cardboard cutouts of both the Stan and Mike character. And they like dragged them along to each scene and they didn't talk the whole, like the rest of the review. And I was like, that's a really good representation of what those characters were in that first part. And that they were non-characters. They were just kind of there. So I think in the second part, Muschietti wants to, he wants to try and atone for that so mike suddenly because which i think i liked how mike actually became this really integral character like he was in the book but even like to the nth degree he is pennywise said it in the in the in the final scene he's the madman he's been in isolation essentially even isolation in his prison of dairy having been forced to relive his trauma for over tw- well, 27 years. And and Muschietti, I remember reading after the first one came out that he wanted to make Mike a lot more of a depressing character. He wanted to show the the impact of the trauma had on him. So he wanted to have... I remember the original idea was to have Mike be kind of like an addict addicted to either alcohol, uh, heroin, some sort of chemical dependence... And they kind of go into that a little bit with the psychedelics, but it's not so much as a numb the pain. It's more of a cathartic re- exploration of of finding answers. So I actually I liked him a lot, and I definitely liked the how it was played, and that it's this obsession with everyone we can't leave. I li- I lied to you to get you to come, and then everyone's trying to leave, and he suddenly becomes very manic and very. I guess hyper and saying we can't leave, we can't leave, we can't leave. You have to stay here mm-hmm. because we have to do it. I really like that how it was portrayed as really as a man about to 
like dip into madness, but he's not quite there yet. So I actually really like the portrayal of of Mike in in throughout the whole um, throughout the whole film. I thought it was definitely very appropriate, especially going from a non character to, to such an integral character in this movie. No, I completely agree. I I thought Isaiah Mustafa does a great job of playing him, and I thought Chosen Jacobs and his flashbacks got to do way more interesting stuff than he did in that first movie. I think it's great that you, you talk about nostalgia critics. I haven't seen that that review, but th- that's exactly right. Stan and Mike are just cardboard pieces in that first movie, um, and and to the point that I even wondered, like, why do you have to have them? You know, if you're going to redo this, why not just make it the Lucky Five? You know, which are, was more interesting anyway, because. I mean, that's the way it kind of plays out in the book, too. Because uh, Stephen King didn't know what to do with them in the in the third act. Uh, so, I know I, I liked uh, the, all, all of Mike's motivations in this and the way that he reveals information. And that he's not completely on the up and up. He's not this do-gooder. He knows he has to lie to these people. And he, I mean, one of the big lies he doesn't reveal to them is that like, Hey, the Shimshu Indians or whatever that did this, that didn't go so well for them. They screwed it up. And I love how Pennywise is like, you didn't tell them what happened. Did you like, and as if you couldn't have logically figured that out anyway, like, wait a minute, if they defeated it, then why is it still here? Yeah, like, that was like nobody put that together, and I was like, "Well, you know what? These people are losers, so they're idiots." Yeah, I was like, like "What do you it. mean he lied?" <laughs> I'm like, "Pennywise is still alive. Like, yeah. obviously the ritual didn't work." <laughs> mm-hmm. And and they're like, "What the fuck, Mike? You lied again?" He's like, "I I I knew it. They didn't believe." And I'm like, "But it's yeah. like one and one does like equals two, not three. Like you could have put this together lot like very logically." But I did like that aspect of him having to lie, but. And and then we can get into that. But real quick, I wanna we we haven't talked about a specific character yet. And I guess we've been inadvertently talking about him a little bit. But that's Pennywise, Bill Skarsgård in this. I thought Pennywise was so much he was so much better handled in this film. I think the performance wise was just enough camp, but also just enough scary clown and or even just enticing clown. I don't think we got an enticing Pennywise in the last film. Here, we definitely got that. I think with the, I think just the interactions with the losers was all, was really good. When he's you know singing the song to Richie off of the Paul Bunyan statue, when he's confronting, uh, when he's confronting Ben in well, I guess as a child in there as well. Uh, Beverly, that was the show-stealing scene, I think. I think there's two scenes that I think are oh, awesome yeah. with Bill Skarsgård. The first one is with the the little girl with the with the birthmark. That yeah. was that is how the Georgie she- scene should have gone. And that and and I remember watching when they're sitting at the baseball game and, you know, the firefly comes up when you see this little girl and she's like, "Oh, oh," and she's she's running after the fly or the firefly. And I remember it was it was my brother my brother's girlfriend in between us and then me. And I just remember like sitting into my hand, just like, Oh no. And she, and his girlfriend turned to me like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Like I already know where this is going. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that scene going down and I, and what I love about it is she is like Pennywise clamps it, get that great reveal. And she pretty much just says, you're a scary clown. Like, fuck you go away. Which is exactly what kids should be doing, even in the, which is what Georgie should have done. Yeah. But in 2016, with Stranger Danger and like all these, we know the danger of strangers. 
but it's even better because she acknowledges he's scary and starts to turn away. But then he turns on that that charm, and he and what's even better is he plays on her insecurities. Mm-hmm. He says, "I don't have friends. People laugh at me because of how I look. Oh, people laugh at me because of my birthmark." And then he says, "Oh, well, I can blow that away. I can solve your problems. You just have to get closer, and you have to get closer." And then one, two, and this is where I think that animalistic stare. And the and the drooling works because he like loses it. He and he's just like, holy shit, it worked. And says, mm-hmm. you're supposed to say three, and then he just lunges at her. And yeah. that was such an effective scene. And I guess well, if you have any comments about that scene before well, we get into the uh, the Beverly scene. Well, I thought it, it was well done, and I honestly think like this is Machete saying like we kind of botched the Georgie scene, so let me fix that. I mean, that is a part of the story, too, is that a little girl gets killed. That's part of the killings that's kind of, you know, lets Mike know that, like, hey, it's back and all that stuff. So they, they wanted to include that again. But I do feel like, like we need to we need to show, like, how this would work, you know, and how Pennywise really works. And I thought Skarsgård gave such a better performance this time around. And I mostly liked what he did last time. I thought it was weird, but it needed to be weird. Uh, but I thought he was so much more sinister. And but the, the one thing that I loved about the Pennywise here was he talked about, oh, I have missed you. Like these seven kids were something different for him as an experience of a, you know, a virtually eternal being for him to have any kind of relational memory of them is profound to me. It's, it's the idea of like, you know, well, you know, it's, if a God knew your name, you know, and it, the fact that he goes like, I have missed y'all. I've missed battling with y'all. Like he got something out of that experience, you know, even though it nearly destroyed him. Right. And I thought, man, what a weird, neat, sadistic thing to give this character here, because that's not really clear in the book at all. And it's definitely not part of the Tim Curry and the miniseries and stuff. It's just he just dismisses them again. And these are like his favorite you know, adversaries or something. I, I thought that was very neat. It reminded me very much of like the way Joss Whedon wrote a lot of villains and Buffy and stuff, how there would come to be this bit of mutual respect between the big bad and Buffy before it was all said and done sometimes. And it, when it worked, like you really liked it, like the mayor in season three is a good example of that. And I felt like this Pennywise was giving me a lot of that stuff, whether that's intentional by Doberman and, and Machete or not, I don't know, but I, it was where my mind went watching this was like, and it's like, watching the mayor in season three of Buffy. I, I enjoyed that. And I think another thing that Scarsgard does really well is he's able to make the audience feel empathy for Pennywise, which I would never in a million years think I would say that. And that's how, like, that he turns on that charm that was missing in the last movie. And that also kind of happens in the end, but I do want to return to what you said about, oh, I, how Pennywise is, I've missed you. Because Brian had a really good point towards the end of the film, what he said, and and this kind of, this relationship of, as much as Pennywise hates them, I think there's this, he kind of respects the losers in a really weird, twisted sense, but we'll get on, we'll get to that at the very end, but the other scene I wanted to talk about that I think was show-stealing was Beverly returning to her, 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 her childhood home. I think the Mrs. Kirsch scene I was that was so this was the original teaser trailer that I remember thinking yeah. this is awesome and everyone has seen this everyone in the theater mm-hmm. was laughing I kind of wish it wasn't the teaser trailer because yeah. I wish I could have just experienced this like just 
in its in its awesomeness. But so everyone kind of knew what was happening. We were just waiting to see the gaps and what like where this was gonna go, like when the trailer ends. And I think the setup is awesome. I really like the detail of oh my father joined the circus. Like that's in the book too. I really like that detail. But also the setup of this like really weird old lady who turns into a witch in the in in the movie like the Hansel and Gretel witch. And yeah. I like here how she turns into this like fish looking monster like really deformed. And this is where I think the CGI. It, I've been going with the CGI so much more in this movie. I liked the the I knew the 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 body actor or the performer that he used was Javier Botet. He works a lot with he's he's in the same vein as Doug Jones and Andy Serkis. He has I forget the specific genetic disease he has, but it makes him extremely thin, long arms and tall. Like this guy is is made to play Slender Man in a movie. Right. But he he works with uh, a lot of Guillermo del Toro. In, in in a lot of Spanish horror films, and I've seen him in them. Uh, he's he's worked in the Conjuring. He's he was I think the Tall Man in the second Conjuring film, and he was he he played Mama in Muschietti's original film. He was the leper, and I actually kind of liked how the design looked, and it also just was kind of jarring and creepy. And the one thing I did think was weird was the mouths on the throat. That was kind of weird, but other than that, I thought that was really awesome. And then the best you see Pennywise without his makeup and you see it in the trailer. But I think it's, I had, I was so, it was so weird seeing Pennywise without the makeup and, and Skarsgård putting it on. It kind of reminded me of like Joaquin Phoenix and Joker. Like you're watching him put the makeup on and then he just, he, he runs his hand down his face and creates his scars from his nails and then just starts screaming at the camera. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like this is true suspenseful horror that Muschietti is ele- is completely elevating than he was in the last film. So what was your take on this whole Beverly oh. sequence? Oh, I loved it. I hate that it got blown in the trailer. Like that was one thing I said at the film strip show is I was like, man, I wish that had been a surprise because you knew it was coming and you'd kind of seen it before, but it's so freaky and weird. And then that, that old lady scuttling around in the background and when she's kind of herky jerky in, and then when you realize she's half naked and it's like, Oh man, I'm about to see some real naked old lady, right? This is going to get real weird. And uh, Nick called out. He's like, yeah, it's like that moment in the shining. Right. And I was like, ah, that's, that's the call back there. I thought about Hmm. that, but no, I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I mean, I, I can't say enough about Jessica Chastain as a performer. Um, First off, she is just a captivating look anyway. And I could literally watch her do scenes reading phone books. And I think I would be like, yep, that needs to be nominated for something. <laughs> like the, the woman can act and she can do so much stuff. And I really got under her early on. One, if you've never seen Zero Dark Thirty, she is oh, so yeah, amazing in that movie. And it just totally carries that. And um, I will always give her a look at whatever she's doing. Not only because I find her you know, gorgeous and alluring and all that kind of stuff, but I she has such depth in the way that she acts. And she's the one person that looks nothing like the kid version of her. Sophia Lillis and her look nothing alike except they have that bright red hair. Like, they, they don't look anything alike. Like, I look at Sophia Lillis and I'm like, you're going to grow up to be about six inches taller than Jessica Chastain. You know, like, no, that's not, that's not what you would grow up to look like. But I didn't care because the performance is so deep and there's so much in it. And when she finally does, you know, put it all together and figure stuff out, it, you just get the Bev character. And, and I really felt like Bev got the short shrift last time. They took away like her superpower. 
you know, that she was the best shot and all that kind of stuff because it had to be her, right? Well, in this one, they give her the better superpower of being clairvoyant and the fact that she has had to dream for nearly 30 years of all of them coming back as adults and being dead and, and dying, you know, fighting Pennywise. And I thought, man, what a deep, weird, neat thing to give that character and to give the Stanley character too because we find out like he kind of has that too because they were the two most exposed to the deadlights. And I thought, man, that was that was cool. And I, the way she plays that, the emotional resonance of all of it is so good. And the scenes where we see her flashing back to her father and we get like the underlying understanding or reason for his abuse, which doesn't excuse it, but it still just makes it even more tragic and sick and all that. And then just a flash to her face like, yep. And just sort of the resolve that she has. It's again, why I said like the fact that they could have let her just go on her own at the end. And I would have been totally fine with it because that's what that character would do. You know, I guess the fact that she found real happiness is great too. It's also very Spielberg smulchy. So, you know, lay that for what it is. But I thought Jessica Chastain was amazing in this film and did such a great job uh, with a neat character. And Sophia Lillis was really the best thing in the last one, too. So that's saying something. Yeah, exactly. And so with all of this being said, I want to transition into the final confrontation of it. Because the uh, the confrontation in the miniseries was uh, laugh- laughable. And that's yeah. and that's yeah. not so much Tommy Lee Wallace's fault. He, I think even in the commentaries or in interviews, he said... This is not like he even's like this is shit. Like I don't even I don't even like this and I made the movie. Mm-hmm. And and so I was very curious to see what form they're going to have Pennywise take. I did kind of like it. I mean, I think it's a little overemphasized on the clown, but I think it works because we have that hybrid Pennywise spider form. Yeah. Obviously understanding that this is his form of he like as his species. I I know him oh. mostly as that uh like the protector of one of the dark towers and that's kind of where I understand it but that's taking knowledge outside of it this is knowledge from the Stephen King universe lore but I did kind of I did like it I I went with it I thought there's actually weight to the CGI I think it didn't just seem like they were on a green screen just like jumping and like shit's exploding around them mm-hmm. but I did I did like the final form a lot more but I definitely really liked the uh like the 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 beginning of the ritual of Chud, like you know, calling down, like turn turn a uh, lightness in the dark, which is weird because you'd imagine it'd go the other way, but I guess with mm-hmm. the with the deadlights, so you know they're chanting, they get it, they they come down into this like sacrificial box, and what I really like that detail again, it's it's showing not telling that when the deadlights come down, you see it, it's very like well I don't want to say phallic, it, it it looks like like a vagina coming down like in the innards of this uh of dairy but it's also more showing that da- that it is actually embedded into the life force of dairy like in the mm-hmm. bowels of dairy he's like grown onto the walls and he is just ever he's omnipresent he's always there and then the deadlights come down go into this box summons pennywise with that uh with that balloon which is a very trippy visual Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then we get that, the, the monster, and then suddenly the ritual of Chud begins with between uh, Bev, Ben, and, but mostly, mostly Bill. I think Bill is the only one that really has, uh, like, that he under he undergoes that ritual, but I think Beverly and Ben also go through it as well. And then Richie and, Richie and Eddie have their 
comic relief of being scared, which I think worked. But I definitely really liked this final confrontation because it wasn't what the first part was, where it was just a beat down on Pennywise. It's mm-hmm. physical and this this trans-dimensional coming to terms with their own acceptance of their own trauma. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is I, I knew they were going to do that in this movie uh, before I even knew the spoilers of it and stuff. And I thought, man, visualizing that is going to be a real feat because I, you know, I have a pretty good imagination and I've read that or heard that scene for years and I can't tell you what I think it should look like. You know, like, I, I don't know, like he bites under the tongue of this thing and he's sweeping across the universe while hurling insults at it. And I'm like, what, what? You know, like, I don't know what that was supposed to be. The fact that they gave its perfect form as those three spinning lights that when they're activated, like are having lightning storms between each other and stuff as the deadlights and stuff. Like, I loved that. I thought, man, that is the perfect visualization of this. And the fact that he turns into a big clown-esque spider I didn't read that so much as they're paying homage to the, that's his true form or whatever. It's more of like, this is what you know me as mostly is is Pennywise, but I'm going to show you what I really look like when I want to get down, you know? And, and and the the whole balloon motif is huge in this movie. And that he comes out of a big balloon is, is fine. I like the fact that they gave that face in there. Cause that's the one thing that happens is Tim Curry disappears from the end of the movie, <laughs> you know, and you never see him again. And that was missing in that end with the animatronic spider thing. And in this one, you, you've got Skarsgård there giving a performance. I love how everybody gets split apart and they have to use each other and, and rely on each other and rely on what they know is truth. And, and the thing about, about trauma is, and every good counselor will tell you this is that at some point you have to accept things that happened and let yourself off the hook for the guilt of it. And that's really Bill's thing. And I love that they gave the wrinkle of it, that he really wasn't that sick that day. He just didn't feel like going outside. You know, he just he just didn't want to fool with it. And, you know, as someone who's the younger brother of an older brother, I know there's many times when he didn't want to do anything with me. You know, that, that's just part of life. Right. And I don't blame him for that. You know, that's just this part of it. And I love how McAvoy is able to tell his younger self, like, no, nah, that's not going to define how we were as brothers and, and you know what this was. And I'm going to forgive myself for this. And I'm going to end you as a part of this because this guilt is not this is not getting anywhere. And this is what Pennywise wants is for me to wallow in this forever until he can get me. And I, I love how he resolved that. I like how Ben and Bev basically had to save each other. Um, I, boy, I really feel for Jessica Chastain. Cause I knew they talked about like all the blood they used in that scene. And I thought, man, girl, you had to be sticky for weeks after that. <laughs> I cannot imagine what that was like to peel out of yourself. Um, but you just shave your head and start over at that point. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, and I, I, it was amazing, the, the physical part of that. And in the burying of Ben and the, the clubhouse, I love that, you know, the whole motif of that. All of that totally worked for me. What I really liked is that they have this plan, like, we're going to get him to chase us through a small hole, so that way he could become small and we can stomp him. And Pennywise is, like, sitting behind them going, like, what was that again? Oh, no, we're not going to do that. You know, and, and so it doesn't work. And I love that Mike gets the line of, like, there's another way to make somebody feel small. And it's it, the whole theme here is like, you know what? Turn it on the bully sometimes. Maybe you don't have to punch him in the face, but you can show him what this is like. And that they basically, and that's part of the book too. They insult Pennywise to the point that they can get him in a form that they can damage him. And I love the fact that at the end, they, they've got the heart and they're about to squeeze it to death. And in this moment of, I don't know what it is, this, you know, ultra world extraterrestrial being looks at these 
you know, human standing in front of him and goes, well, look at you all grown up. Like he's proud of the fact that it's them that finally ended him. Which is so awesome. Like that totally worked. And, and Brian and I talked about this in our episode where it's like that mutual respect of like, Oh shit. You like between adversaries, like I hate you and you hate me, but good job. You killed me because Pennywise has been doing this for, literally millions of years and someone finally stepped up and beat him at his own game and one thing about the with bill i really liked with his 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 own ritual is that because i was talking about this with brian and a few other people like haven't we retreaded this before with he didn't the last movie he accepted like his brother's death i'm like well yes but this this bill it wasn't about accepting his brother's death. It's about accepting his own responsibility in his own brother's death. Or it's not even his, or their lack thereof, his responsibility. And I really like that he finally had to forgive himself by, and I thought that was a really interesting visual of quote unquote drowning Georgie and then shooting him, shooting his younger self like that, uh, the vindictive, vengeful, like angry younger self with the cattle gun. And that is like that, is his ritual and it, and that and I think it's implied heavily that that weakens Pennywise and I think Ben and Beverly coming together also weakens Pennywise like that's their rituals finding each other. Yeah, I, I mean really like what, what we learn is that he knows if he splits them up from each other and particularly if he kills Bill they're all screwed. You know, he knows that. And so the fact that they're able to overcome that and then work together for that resolve to be able to put him down in the end You'll put him down almost literally by their words, and then they put him down by squeezing you know his life force out. Uh, is is neat, and that mutual respect, all of that, totally works. And again, it works because you believe these people are close and have bonded together to pull this off together. I would have never believed it, and I didn't really go with it in the first movie because I didn't think I thought all those kids do was just gang up and beat somebody up. You know, they didn't really do anything together this group bonded together to vanquish this ultimate evil uh, because they knew they had to and they wanted to and in some ways i think he wanted it to be them too you know i i likened it to the end of heat when al pacino and robert de niro have that showdown in the uh outside of the runway and spoiler alert for a movie that's nearly 30 years old uh pacino guns him down and De Niro and him like hold hands as De Niro slips away. And he's like, I told you I wasn't ever going back. You know, they had that moment together of mutual respect. And I think they, they kind of do the same thing here with Pennywise. And I thought it was, it was great. Skarsgård plays it great. It's well-written. It, it totally works in every way. Um, and is, is a, is the best way to do the ritual of Chud ending without getting caught up in the trappings of how do you make that real? And let's be honest, the, the one in the book goes on like way too long and is weird oh, yeah. and trippy and you, you can't understand it. Uh, this makes that a metaphysical weird thing, something you can totally wrap your brain around and enjoy. And it streamlines it more. And I think even in the book, they go more in that Pennywise like laid eggs for future Pennywise. And, and there's like a segment when uh, Ben is like stomping all the eggs and he's like, Oh my God, there's more of them. But he like put, this is them putting an end to that where again, again the rewriting and the omissions what they rewrote worked and what they left out did not need to be in the movie i also really like that font like that people have been saying miniature pennywise i and i love how he just kind of turns into this like i said with brian 
into like primordial soup. Like it's just this sh- literal shell. Like he's like an he's like the he's the yolk inside of the shell of this egg of what he once was. And he like is he at one point like they they reach in and he kind of shows his fangs one last time. Then he just sinks back in and his head like kind of morphs around the rock. And then when they reach in for his heart, his multiple hands are like kind of getting the, trying to get them to stop and they pull out the heart and yeah like you said oh look how like you've all grown up and then they just squash the heart and it's not over dramatic they all just put their hand in and they just squash the heart and then pennywise has dies and then just turns into ash and drifts away and i thought that was super well done super effective for the scene and i and then they and then and then we get into what you mentioned earlier in the book it would it makes sense because Pennywise is so embedded into the history of Derry that the town literally falls apart when Pennywise finally is killed. And you know, there's scenes that you were mentioning earlier and alluding to that you know it's like this big like Dory. It makes Do- the Hurricane Dorian being a little topical seem like nothing. And like people are just getting messed up left. Like people are getting killed. I think a dude was going on a run. And, like, a sewer grate explodes and it, like, it decapitates him in the middle of his walk. Yeah, I mean, you get you get chapters of, like, this street flooded into this street and then into this street. Like, King wipes out this entire landscape in that book. And, and I mean, I, I look at that again as, like, this baptismal rebirth of Derry after it's vanquished its ultimate evil, right? And I thought that was neat. The, this one, like, I, as much as I want to see that, and I thought that would be neat, they haven't really set that up in this, like that big tunnel of, you know, razor teeth or whatever is like the only thing we see that's sort of like that with, with Pennywise in this version of the movie. So it's fine that they didn't do it. I just kind of always have wanted to see what that would look like because I think it's such a neat motif and it's a neat idea, but they haven't set that up. So if they'd done that here, while I, much as I would have liked it, I would have questioned like, well, narratively, that doesn't really make any sense because you guys haven't built that. I just thought it was funny when, when we see the Neibolt Street house just demolish and implode it on itself. Yeah. It's that drone shot of looking down, and then it's very clearly a suburban neighborhood, and all the houses around are like, okay, it's fine, it's a nice sunny day, but then there's like this massive destructive house just falling down. I was like, I think a little bit more destruction would have been a little bit better, but that at this point is just nitpicking, because I think every, I'm going with everything at this point. It's just the one decrepit house on the block that is, you know, it hasn't been torn down, but it's because Pennywise and it has its own, I guess, protective barrier around it, and then you know, something got destroyed. So I guess it's to symbolize like Pennywise is officially dead. Cause I think if that house was still standing mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, we would have been a little bit, uh, we would have been questioning a little bit. So, right. and that's, and that's the, you know, the vanquish Pennywise is vanquished. We, like you mentioned earlier that, that I guess that baptism, that rebirth, them jumping into the quarry. And then we get our, our schmaltzy ending, which I've been waiting for to the end on this. Cause there's one character we have not talked about. And that is, Stanley the man Uris and ooh man I really don't know like how I feel about this ending so I'll, I'll tell you how I feel about it I hate it uh, I, re- I really do I, I get it I get what they're trying to say um I I, I want to be real clear because they they do a good job in this of Stanley's character kills himself and that's part of all the narrative of this this whole story it's always been and he does so in this but they all each get a letter in the mail from his wife, because what we see is he has gone to write each of them a letter. And basically he tells them like he he shares a little bit of that vision with Bev, because again, he was in, you know, 
its mouth. He was exposed to the dead light. So he has some of that same visionary stuff she has. And he knows if they come back together, they're all going to die. One of the reasons they're going to die is because he cannot do this. And he knows he can't. And so he says in his letter, I took myself off the board because I knew I was the weak link. And the thing about that, that I just, I don't know, it just hits me in the the side of the face a little bit. It's like, I don't want to glorify the tragedy that is suicide in any possible way, you know? Yeah, it, exactly. It, and it almost feels like that's on the verge of this, but the way it it's written and the way that the monologue goes, you get that it's more like, no, I jumped on the grenade to save all of you, you know? So this is not me giving into my depression or, you know, other issues that are very serious and very real for a lot of people and, and things like that. It, it is, I know if we do this adventure together like this, I cannot help you. The way I can help you is to not be there and for the six of you to pull together. And I mean, they have good memories of him. They pull out the shower caps. They have this kind of little joke about it. They, they, you know, even Richie says like, man, this guy couldn't hack it. You know, like he, he says what well, I'm saying, what everybody's thinking, you know, and they, they do until they all realize like, this is what this is really about, that he made a self-sacrifice for us. I, I like the intention of that, Mike, but I I really, I, I don't know. It, ultimately, I didn't like it. And I just thought, you know, I can't, I get what you're trying to do there, Gary Doberman and, and Machete, but I don't think it works. And I would have been much better if they had just left it the way it's left in the book, where, you know, Stanley was so afraid of it. That it just, it, it, and they understood that he'd made that decision in the book and in that original miniseries because the fear of it was just too overwhelming. And hey, I understand that too. And that's what helps bond them together. I didn't need letters from the grave to do that for me. Like, I just, I felt like that was a little too much and a little cheap. Yeah, I just thought it was, like you said, it's like glorifying and it's suicide and it's making it seem like this this sack this ultimate sacrifice for the group but and, and it's just it's it just kind of leaves like a really weird taste in my mouth and it's kind of borderline dis- distasteful especially like knowing people that have committed suicide you know suicide is a rampant problem in 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 the modern united states and in mental health and it's just a problem and just to kind of say oh well i did the next logical thing so i i killed myself to take myself off the board and and the inflection in the monologue is very like hopeful, but yeah, but at least not. Yeah, yeah it's just false. It just again, it doesn't feel earned. And I think part of that is, and we both nailed it. That character had nothing in the first movie. He actually has better stuff in the kid version of this one, where he like you know freaks out at his bar mitzvah and does everybody the f off and you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, yeah, that would have been neat to see. Last time I would have cared about this guy. And this one thing I will say: the, the kid, the kid that played the 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 Stanley character in the the '90s miniseries, man, you totally went with that kid. And even Richard Mazur as the adult version, you totally got it. And and you liked the idea of what he became and all that stuff. I this one, it just it, it feels like they're trying to hit an emotion, but it just hits false with everything else that they've done. I didn't need it, and I don't think the movie needs it either. But you know, it's the choice they made, so it, it is what it is. It's it's 
part of the, again, the continued small scene. So Bill finally starts writing a book that he thinks he has a good ending for. Mike's going to go to Florida finally. Uh, ben and Bev are together. You know, Richie carves his, uh, Eddie's initials back into the bridge with him and he rides off in his Mustang to go be the next great gay comic in America or something. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Like, we don't know. Right? But it's it did feel a little Spielberg-ish. And look, I, I, I'm throwing that around a lot. I love Steven Spielberg movies. I love all of them. I love them for the small scene endings. But they are what they are and they are a hallmark of what that guy's left in American cinema and clearly Muschietti is trying to give us that happy ending and you know that's the problem with it as a book and as a really as a story is it doesn't have a happy ending it's a tragic end but they make it work and the the thing that happens too in the end of the book and, and it's in the original miniseries too is they all start forgetting everything again and in this they go out of their way to say like I'm not forgetting anything maybe I want to remember the you know the best things now about y'all so they're all friends they have each other's names and their phones now and all that stuff and I don't know I, I kind of liked it better where they all just forgot it all again and had to move on now I didn't need Bill to you know ride Audra on a bike down Main Street either <laughs> but this was a, a little too much in the the other direction for me and that and that goes this is like the final punchline of that running joke that bill or stephen king is who we're all referencing doesn't know how to write an ending which is kind of true not not for all of his stuff like i think i think a lot i think there are endings to a lot of his stories that i genuinely like i mean all like five thousand stories you gotta have a few you gotta have a few of them that actually work but I, and, and like you said, I like the intention. I actually do kind of like the idea that they aren't forgetting. I think it's another way to solidify that Pennywise is f- officially dead and is not coming back. And I think it is that I think the ending of the book is a little bit more cynical and tragic because, you know, we have that moment because every, at the end of the book, everyone leaves except Bill and Mike and Audra because Audra is in this catatonic state from seeing the deadlights and Bill is staying in Dare to take care of her and he's seeing Mike and... And I think at one point, it's like a few weeks later, Mike even's writing in his journal, like, oh, I'm forgetting a lot of things at such a rapid pace. And then they sit there and they're talking about Eddie and they, and they say, what, what's, what's Eddie's last name? And they can't remember his last name, like up, not even a month after he died, which I just think is kind of weird, but I get what he's going at. But I do like here that they're choosing not to, like they're, they aren't forgetting and that, that, it's like I said, solidifying that Pennywise is officially dead. They're choosing to remember each other. They have each other's names saved in, in the phones. It's happy, but yeah, it's just that suicide that really makes it weird. It's not even like a. I think they could change that a little bit by just saying, by Stanley saying, "I'm sorry for what I did. I'm just, I just can't get over it." But but then going the way of, "I never forgot you guys. I always loved you," which makes this even more tragic. But they go the route of, oh, I, I sacrificed myself for the better of you. So that's just a weird way to end the movie. But I understand the intention. I just think the execution and the writing probably could have gone through another rewrite to make it a little less, oh, suicide is okay if you have, like, a, a good intention, which is weird, a weird thing to say. But, so, and yeah, and this movie is, de- like, the ending is definitely schmaltzy and... Like, very, I don't know, it's, I, I don't mind it, it's just the suicide thing really kind of threw me, because I was like, ooh, like, you really had me going, like, the whole movie until this, like, little bit at the end, but, but that's kind of all I gotta say about the end, like, I think it could have been changed a little bit, but yeah, the glorification of suicide was really a weird choice. 
Yeah, it was very strange. Like I said, it's just a different way to end this. But it, you know, the cynical end of it is more real to life, Mike. I mean, my father-in-law had this conversation all the time about people we know who pass away. And then a month later, does anybody even talk about them still? Do they say anything about them? Because what happens? You move on. Life moves on. And this book and the story is about learning how to move on from trauma and dealing with it and sometimes you need other people to do that but once you're done with it you move on to your life and you you go to whatever is next in life and i while that may be a little cynical it's also just very real you know i mean that's just how it is i mean like i you know the things like social media is kind of cool because i can keep up with friends that i haven't seen or don't live anywhere near anymore but i don't i'm not really a part of their lives you know my friends from high school and stuff like i see their kids and it's neat and you know we'll share old you know stories here and there sometimes on facebook or whatever but i you know i don't live their life and they don't live mine either and that's just that's okay you know that's just adulthood that's what you do and that's what king was trying to talk about here and they didn't want to do that at the end of this movie because this movie's been a big triumphant you know thing of bringing all these people together and they had this great showdown and i think they knew they had a really good ending so they wanted to give everybody the happy right off into the sunset ending without literally having to ride Audra down the street on a bike again. Cause everybody knows how, how ridiculously awful that was in every form. And so, yeah, so they, they came up with a different ending. It's somewhat better. It fits the motif of this movie. The Stanley stuff's weird, but fine. You know, that's, that's the statement they want to make. I walked out of it going, it was such a better experience than last time. And I you know, would totally recommend it for people. And it's definitely one that I'm going to add to the collection when it comes around. And I, I asked myself, I'm like, will I watch the first one again and then watch this back into it? Or will I just watch this? And I honestly don't know if I can answer that right now. I mean, when it comes out on video, you can ask me if I've done that. And I'll be glad to, to cop to what my method is. I'm really intrigued by this rumor that Machete is cutting together the two movies into a Godfather saga-like version. And I hope that that's available sometime because I think that would be a fascinating thing to watch and might be a better way to consume that first movie if it's integrated with the best parts of this one uh, and and can do that kind of concurrent timeline thing, which is so cool about the book. Um, but yeah, this, this was such a good experience and uh, it's such a neat thing for a horror movie because um, I, you know, what you can say about the fact that that thing made a hundred million dollars and that this one will probably make 600 or more or something like that is that a lot of horror movies are going to get made because of this. And as a fan of the genre and as seeing that we're finding interesting things to do with the genre, like, you know, Summersby and the witch and uh, hereditary and stuff like that. If movies like that get made because big budget movies like this make a lot of money and fund the studio's willingness to produce them. So be it. I am always about that because I think in horror movies, you can tap into so much about society and, you know, norms and growing up and changing and all, there's all kinds of stories you can tell uh, in simple horror movies that don't cost $70 million to make. They cost 10 and then they make a hundred, you know, and stuff like that. So I think that's neat. And I'm glad that they made this and, it's a much better experience as a film. And I'm curious to see what Machete does next. If he's going to do, you know, it prequels that have been talking about that, you know, I, I would be down to see Skarsgård come back and do this again, uh, because I think he is amazing in this. And I'm really curious to see what he does next. Yeah. And so I'm going to echo a lot of your, your, the sentiments that you had said, I definitely enjoyed this film 
so much more. Like I said before we started that I feel like this is the film that Muschietti wanted to make. Chapter 1 was the, we're going to give this to you because you're the second choice. Kerry Fukunaga fell through. We didn't like his script. You're very passionate. You're a very, you're an up-and-comer, up-and-coming director. I know you're like kind of a disciple of Del Toro, who's another great uh, horror suspense thriller uh, filmmaker. So I mean, talk me about an shot. auteur, man. That that dude is an auteur. And, you could, and, you could, and I feel like you could see that Del Toro influence in Muschietti's work. And because I think, I think Del Toro gave him a shot with Mama. And so, and I, th- I think you can definitely see his influences here, but he also had, Muschietti is becoming an auteur slowly but surely, and I'm also definitely excited to see what he has to do. I'm just on his IMDb page, and I think next he has, he's making an adaptation of Attack on Titan, the anime. I don't know if it's live action or, or animated. I think Muschietti should try out animation. I think he's got an eye because he's an artist and, and I've seen his storyboards. He's hand-drawn storyboards for it and they verbatim have made it into his films. I haven't seen the chapter two ones but I've seen the chapter one and they're spot on. I think he definitely is a director with a vision. He also, I'm, I'm very curious to see what he has to make next because in an interview he said that chapter one was such a great learning experience, and I think that that translates super well in the chapter two. I think he's a lot more refrained, and he definitely is uh, is, is is pulling out all the stops. Like he's going full blown suspenseful, and I I really enjoyed this film. I I think like like I said again, this is the horror film that he wanted to make last time, but the studio didn't give him a shot. Now they're like, all right, make it, and it's a damn shame because. I mean, this movie is. I, I have the opening box office now. Domestically, it made ninety-one million, and then eight one hundred eighty-five million worldwide. So that I mean, that's a still a shit ton amount of money, which is awesome. And it's like obviously the the last few summers of movies have really not been good, with a few exceptions. But for the most part, the the return over the summer is not been good. But this is kind of starting the fall revival of films. October, I think, is going to be a blowout with all the films coming out. But this is starting that trend. And what's another another shame is I think the this film has... I mean, just going off of those Rotten Tomatoes, I, I mean, I don't really use that as a, am I going to like this movie or not? But it's just kind of a gauge of how people are viewing the film. I think currently it's at a 66%. I think it should be way higher than that. Uh, chapter 1, I think, is still at a 91 or something like that. It's 86 or 91. I think that is way too high. I think Chapter 2 is easily that 85 or 90. And that's where I, I think that's where I, I would rank this as an 8.5 or 9 out of 10. A, a solid B-plus, A-minus film. Definitely really enjoyed this a lot more. I, I think there's a lot more substance and subtext to this film. And it's definitely... I think this is one of the better... If not... Well, no, definitely not the best, but it's definitely the better adaptation of Stephen King's work. I think The Green Mile is probably the best adaptation, or Misery, one of the two, probably Green Mile first. But this is definitely up there, like top three or top five adaptations of the many the many uh, works of Stephen King that have been adapted. So, and, and that's in regard to entertainment, themes, and just how close it is to the novel. I think it really... It goes it goes back and forth and really treads that line very carefully. But we have a super successful, awesome film, and I think I would highly recommend this to 
really anyone. I think this film is just a lot more tense of a film. It's a lot better, and I just think it, there's a lot more there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more, like I said, subtext and depth to the film. So I I highly recommend this film. And you know, I I completely agree with you. It's it's a fun experience, and uh, it's definitely worth seeing, and is a much better. The, this time around and I can't wait to see it again. I mean, I definitely do want to see it again and experience it. And then like, as I see what, what comes with it, if they can meld them together or, you know, what the next iteration of all of this is. But Mike, again, I've really enjoyed talking with you about this, man. This has been an absolute blast. So thank you for having me on the show again. No, thanks for coming on. And Jay, uh, where can uh, all the, if anyone doesn't know, I, 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 I feel like everyone, I feel like we have a very mixed, uh, mixed audience and they know me and they know you but just in case anyone that's coming for the first time doesn't know where to find you where can we find you on social media and your show yeah absolutely uh, the show is called film strip podcast so just search for that on your favorite podcatcher or if you want to look for the links to it on spotify and itunes and google play and all that go to filmstrippodcast.com that'll take you to our anchor.fm page that's where we list all of our shows and they distribute the show for us and you'll find all of our back archives you can subscribe there and we got a lot of cool stuff in there I mean, we do a lot of horror movies and stuff we do a lot of sci-fi we do a lot of action we've done some comedies we've got a lot of cool stuff in the the film strip mix and in september here we've just finished up our summer of Stallone uh, we did uh, three Stallone flicks in a row here and of course we've got it coming up and then you know for the fall we've got a lot of fun things planned we're going to revisit Stanley Kubrick a couple of times Kurt and I've been reviewing all of his films over the last several years and we're kind of getting near the end so we've got a couple of biggies coming up with Barry Lyndon and then The Shining um, you're on in an episode in November uh, with our newest cast member Irina we did two musicals and you and I review The Sound of Music uh, which is a really cool show and so we do that and then um, um, in October, we're planning to do four movies. We usually only do two a month, and uh, but for October is kind of our our big month to do what we call Shocktober. And so we're doing four films. We've got some guests on uh, for some of that, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, then uh, you know we'll round out the year in December with uh, with some other fun stuff. And then we're already planning for things into 2020. So if folks want to find us, they can follow the show on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod or look for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. If you want to follow me, I'm easy to find on Twitter. It's my name, Jay Skipworth that Jay Skipworth you can follow me and I tweet a lot about uh, college and pro football and then movies I'm watching or podcasts I'm listening to so that's really what you're going to get when you, you follow me on social media but um, I, I appreciate you letting me plug the show and again for being on the show and I'm looking forward to having you on Filmstrip and then having you on our Filmstrip session show which is sort of our general discussion topic show too uh, coming up later this fall yeah of course and I'm super excited to hear all of that be on it it's it's, it's going to be a fun time and uh, so yeah with that guys that concludes this episode of Amateur Altours as always you can follow us on Twitter at AltoursPod or email us with any questions comments or concerns at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com and as always thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time